my fellow Westorians. It's great to be here. I'm glad you all are here with us, whether you're here live or listening afterwards or watching afterwards, either one. It's a good day to be here. It's a good day to talk about Song of Ice and Fire. We're going to do that today with the free folk. The free folk. I have a feeling, Sean, that your style of beverage would go over well with the free folk because they're less accustomed to judging people for their choices. They might think it's weird, but they wouldn't judge you. Also because it's nutrient rich and they don't have a lot of that in the North. (laughs) What is it today? This is the protein and green or the green protein they could drink, whereas most of the nutrients come from the bang, the asphalt, the asphalt, the crisp apple (laughs) bang. And uh, what was the other thing? Oh, Mountain Dew. But also the coconut, pineapple, sparkling ice. And it's pretty good. An aspel is when you cross a peach with an apple. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Shout out to Nina, goodqueenally.tumblr.com, one L in Alley. She has a great recent post over there on her blog about what might happen. She got a question and responded, what might happen if Asha had been taken as well as Theon? as a hostage after the Greyjoy Rebellion. How might that have changed things? If any. We've got some fun stuff to talk about today, as usual. Plenty of it, also as usual. And also, as usual, we'll start off with a trivia question. Which character is the first to use the phrase free folk? Yes, free folk. We'll also, in the course of the episode, discuss the phrase wildlings as well. But Free folk, the term they choose for themselves. Who said it first? So when John and Stannis allowed the free folk through the wall, it ended an 8,000-year state of affairs. This is a big part, by the way, why some of the Night's Watch just couldn't handle it. It was, this is the way things have been for so long. Being allies with these people was something they couldn't handle, and that's part of why they killed John. But that is another story, because it wasn't the free folk who did that. (laughs) If the free folk help in the fight against the others, and it does seem like that's what's going to happen, then it will be a case of history repeating itself. They were part of humanity. (laughs) They played their role in stopping the others the first time. They weren't called the wildlings then, but those were the ancestors of the people that lived in the area and did their part. Will they be thanked for their role this time? Or will the world sort of forget about them, lock them on the other side of the wall and send them away without thank you? I mean, that's what happened to Tyrion's Vale clansmen who were also called wildlings when they helped fight in, at the Green Fork and other places. They were just told to go home and laughed at. We haven't seen the last of them. We have not seen the last of them. Likewise, we haven't seen the last of, of the free folk here. And it, it could be even worse, right? Maybe after the others are defeated, it, they become enemies again. Like, there's, an, a, there's an opportunity for peace, for, for an accord, for the old right, wrongs to be righted or at least to be forgotten, or at least to start again. But we certainly can't assume that'll be the case. So this is something we can take on today, questions like that, as well as a lot of other questions that we've dug up on our own, questions that some of y'all are wondering about. As usual, submit your own questions if you are feeling it, if you've got something burning that you want us to ask or want us to answer, send it our way, either here live or through Facebook, our particular Facebook group. You can join our Discord group. Lots of discussions happening there. Send questions through there. We've always got a, uh, a space to discuss what's coming up next, as well as spaces to discuss lots of other things. You can join our Discord at bit.ly slash how Discord. No, oh, I didn't realize it was that easy these yeah. days. Is this 
Can I uh, throw something at you? I hope it's not too much of a curveball, but just something that was like last minute thoughts I had. Well, I like um, baseball. I can handle a curveball. So see what, <laughs> see what happens. Uh, the idea of, as we talk to the different three folk tribes, or I don't know what the best way to refer to them is. Uh, tribes uh, works. Fact, maybe. Okay. Clan. Anyway, I was thinking what superlatives you might add to each one. Uh. Just You don't have to answer me right now, but as we come to them, think about, like, I don't know, who would be the most advanced, most civilized, most north, most okay. etc. Yeah. And that, um, that's a good idea, Sean, because it helps us distinguish them. And that's something that people yes. in, living in, even in the north, in world, don't do a lot of. They don't distinguish them. And it's through John's POV and, and maybe a few other characters that we learn. They're a very diverse people. Yes. And that, I'm glad you said that too, because it leads to another point that I want to make is that as I was approaching this, I was thinking a lot. I was paralleling the different wildling tribes, clans, uh, two free folk clans, whatever the <laughs> proper way to refer to them is, which is important, which is part of what I want to think about today. I, I was th- comparing them to the quote unquote barbarian tribes of Europe and yeah. Roman times, yeah. right? And one thing I realized is that I know that there are the Vandals and the Visigoths and the Sa- Saxons and so on, but I realized I don't really know how to distinguish them. I don't know that much about what key. Ca- I, I do know a decent amount about them, but I don't know for sure how well I could distinguish one from the other. Yeah. And uh, so I thought that would be maybe a good thing to think about with the, the free folk. But it also occurred to me that George probably hasn't limited, limited himself to that. I bet if I knew more, there are parallels to some of the free folk clans to some Native American tribes or yeah. Mongol horde factions or whatever else. So You're right. Uh, You're totally right. And George likes to take from various places to create and imagine, obviously, his own imagination as well, but he borrows from the real world quite a lot. And we've got some of that today. Like a lot of our World of Ice and Fire topics, this isn't a comprehensive look at the free folk, but it is a deep dive into several aspects of their existence, focus on their origins, both in world and out. And yeah, we'll just we'll discuss aspects of culture, attitude towards the South and the South's attitude towards them plus some literary influences as well. And if there's anyone out there in the chat who has some expertise or some idea, this tribe might be like this one in some real-life example. I'd appreciate the, the the tipping point for a rabbit hole to go down. That is, I'm totally with you on that as well, Sean. Please speak up if you have some information, especially if we missed something important or made a mistake. I do. Actually, it's interesting, Sean, you mentioned the Vandals. It's a really good example because the Vandals take away the V and you've got the handles. <laughs> they were fair. Yes, they're yes. fair haired, blue eye. Like there's a lot of similarities there. That's something we'll talk and about. There were also there, but... the angles. Yeah, so the angles. There's, um, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, clearly, defend, uh, you know, certainly Martin was had some parallels going on there, but also I'm as certain that it wasn't limited. To that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So we'll start with some basics. The Free Folk have a section devoted them in the, world of, in the world of Ice and Fire. It's pretty far towards the end of the book, so we're really jumping around now. But that's really how we're doing this. This is not your ordinary reread, but hey, we're having a lot of fun with it. It's working. We'll keep going. So they are mentioned frequently throughout, even though they have their own section. It's part of why it, it makes sense to jump around with the topic because the Free Folk have existed since the time of the Long Night, roughly speaking. And we've, we're in that roughly that space in the timeline. So yeah. But of course, they're almost always referred to as wildlings in almost every case in the book. When when people in the South are speaking about them or in the world of ice and fire, that's generally what they're referred to as. It's a pejorative, though it isn't always meant that way. It's it's one of those words that's become so common that some people don't even realize it's an insult when they're saying it, and they don't mean that in their heart. Maybe that that's a, a separate conversation to have, whether intentional or not intentional, and how much that 
how much burden is on the person to make sure they're not insulting somebody. But it's an interesting point in the way language is used because that's a real, that happens in the real world too. Some people just use terms they don't realize are offensive and that can cause some friction when, you know, it's misunderstood or, or whatever. I think, for example, a really common mistake that people south of the wall make is that they assume that they're similar or the free folk are all similar because of certain things they have in common. Now, they do have certain things in common. Yeah, poverty is really common beyond the wall. But poverty isn't a culture. (laughs) It's not a cultural trait, right? That's a state of affairs, right? That's not like a defining aspect of what makes you tick, of what makes your culture unique. I mean, poverty can strike anyone, any culture. It's not, I mean, it's fair to include it as a trait, but it isn't like the defining trait. It's not something that really works as a unifying trait across a dozen or a hundred different cultures. Yeah, they're all impoverished. That's the number one thing they have in common. No, it's, I mean, that's not really that distinct, is it? Even within an impoverished group, there would still be levels of wealth and stability and et cetera. Yeah, and, yeah uh, good point. Yeah, and, and it wouldn't so much be impoverished, in my opinion, if you're looking at the culture, being impoverished might be a cause of a cultural trait. Sure. Not the trait itself, right? Yeah, so, that's true. Like a priority of food or farming or something. I don't know. And some people, uh, to be, and to maybe to round it out a little, there are certain groups that, that do choose to live in poverty. Not that the wild, that the free folk necessarily are in that group, but that is a, a thing. Like some people take a vow of, of poverty or think living simply is just the, the correct way to be. There's certainly plenty of famous examples in the real world and in, in, in A Song of Ice and Fire as well. Maybe not plenty of examples in a song of ice and fire, but there are some. <laughs> Before we go too much farther, I wanted to point out, Aziz, the word barbarian. Yeah. Its roots were, they're very similar words were coming up in different parts of the world, actually, which makes you suspect there's some other even more root or some, the, the, the word traveled or whatever. But it, in Greek, it originally meant not Greek. It meant it was <laughs> yeah, more like yeah. someone that doesn't speak my language, right? Yeah. And you can see how quickly that could be turned to foreigner, less than me. You can see how those yeah. can get connected. But at this point, usually you hear barbarian and you think uncivilized, cruel, savage, uneducated, et cetera, et cetera. But it originally just meant someone who doesn't speak my language. And the word has evolved over time. And so again, you could see how at some point wildly might have meant one thing and came to mean something. I imagine the first Europeans that came across to Europe when they called the Native Americans Indians, the the Native Americans didn't feel offended by that. They didn't know yeah, what Indians were. Like, yeah. It would be their actions for, that defined whether it was yeah. an insult or not. Yeah, Exactly. Generations and generations later, Europeans calling them Indians still might not, or certainly weren't meaning it to be an insult. It's just that's what the word meant yeah. for that phase of history. But as we, as the word changes and evolves and we learn more, the connotation of the word now has changed too. Yeah. We have a better phrase to use. So, Absolutely. And if, and just like... Westeros probably isn't as woke as we are. But. <laughs> <laughs> and, just, and just like the phrase Indian, it's been used to describe a, a vast number of people. And it gets confusing because you also have India, which is yep. a different type of word. And yeah, <laughs> yep. anyway, and that happens in Westeros as well. You have wildlings beyond the wall. You have wildlings in the Vale. You have arguably there's wildlings in Skagos. They call themselves by a different word, but there's a lot of similar cultural background. They get lumped together like a lot of the others. So it's a similar concept. But we're really focused on the ones beyond the wall today. We're not going to, we'll deal with the Vale and Skagos some other time. Well, I actually already have an episode on Skagos. But yeah, like most things north of the north, the Citadel gets a lot wrong. It's almost like the farther you go north, the less they know, the more they get wrong. It's a combination of 
admitting their ignorance and disbelieving the stories that they are given and also just not having a lot of information. There's a huge number of tribes that consist of wildlings. The maesters don't seem to be terribly well-versed in those either. But as usual, well, almost as usual, we have a song of ice and fire to help us fill in some of the gaps that the maesters are lacking. Right. I think that's pretty cool. The, the idea that the main books are informing the expanded material rather than the other way around. It's usually like this all seeing narrator gives you fills in the blanks. But here we have both editions, both uh, versions have their own missing information because they're not presented as all knowing. And I think that's pretty fun. I think, by the way, that's a neat extension of something that's already happening in a main series, is that we see the truth from one character, and then we see the perception or belief of another character or group of characters. That's yeah. It. When, and when they're talking about the wall and the state of things in King's Landing versus what we see is actually happening at the wall, or even the whole story is set up by us knowing the reality of the others, of the, the real monsters that are actually there, and in... In the meantime, we see the rest of the story playing out with that ignorance. That's a great point. Yeah, the jo- George really does use a lot of that in a lot of places, just how people operate based on the information that they have and their beliefs about that information, their interpretation of the information, not necessarily the truth. People see the truth in so many different ways. As usual, the comet remains one of the best examples of everybody interpreted it differently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's so many different interpretations. And it's a, it's a wonderful jumping point to show how that uh, plays out in so many other places as well with, th- with things that aren't so blatantly clear. Even when it's blatantly clear, people still have a lot of different interpretations. But yeah, maybe the comment isn't blatantly clear. It's blatantly clear that it's there. What it means, that's not so clear. But anyway. Yeah, each one of those imp- interpretations is clearly not blatantly clear. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> I think. Well, yeah. <laughs> to further both the difficulty and the mystery is how much word of mouth and song has survived the eons to tell many free folk stories, right? That's part of the issue is that there isn't a lot of written down stuff to to refer back to. But there is, like I said, a lot of songs and legends. And it's amazing that some of them have survived so long. And some of them we've covered elsewhere. So when we when we can, we'll refer you to those in passing and show you where they fall in context to the others and the others occasionally. It's an unrealistic thing, but it's possible if you could collect all the songs and legends together, it might be more valuable and informative than all the written words combined together. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, who can say? You're right. It's, it shouldn't, it's definitely a worthy uh, idea. Yeah. So here's how this section on the Wildlings begins in the world of Ice and Fire. In the lands beyond the wall live the diverse people, all descended from the first men, that we of the more civilized South name Wildlings. This is not a term they use themselves. The largest and most numerous of the various peoples beyond the wall named themselves the free folk in their belief that their savage customs allow them lives of greater freedom than the kneelers of the South. And it is true that they live with neither lord nor kings and need bow to neither man nor priest, regardless of their birth or blood or station. Yeah, even Yandel concedes a little bit to the possibility that some aspects of their lives are better. So I appreciate that. But he also uses terms like more civilized and savage and things like that. Now, civilized is certainly a matter of perspective. Freedom is also a matter of perspective. And this is a really interesting 
way of looking at things. Let's start off with a, with a take from Nina that I thought was pretty solid here. She says, this paragraph is a good reminder not only of the fallibility of Yandel as a narrator, but also the fallibility of identifications. Yandel notes that the free folk prefer to call themselves by this term because they live with neither lords nor kings and need bow to neither man nor priest. But this isn't entirely true. There are kings among the free folk. Mance is one, and there's been others. And he had to def- defeat, according to him, five other would-be kings beyond the wall, including Tormund, Steer, and some others. So the Thens not only live in a very organized society with its with laws and armor, and they have someone that's really above the level of king. They consider the Magnar like a god or a god king. So even within this subversion of subversion, no, the subversion of of non-kingly governments, we have a version that's more intense living amidst all this independence. So it's, it shows just the level of diversity even within this area beyond the wall. And there's even more local leaders that that we never get into. I mean, there John is just in, amazed at how many different peoples with different looks and appearances and different styles of ruling. And he doesn't even know how half of these clans or tribes rule themselves. Certainly Yandel doesn't either. There's a lot of unspoken here. There's a implication that there's a lot of data and information that none of us have that George didn't bother with or hasn't had reason to explain yet, but the implication is it's like an iceberg above the surface. You're only seeing the pot above the water. Below the surface, there's a lot more iceberg. And I think that's true for the free folk cultures that are, there's just no time to explore them all. A couple of thoughts here. One is that for the majority of human history or human existence, I should say, there haven't necessarily been organized governments, but there have still been cultures. There have still been rules. There have still been leaders. Even before you have an official sovereign state, the people of an area will still have customs and traditions and leaders and so on. Um, yeah, they don't have codified laws, for example, which is also a big, right. long time, a lot of history, humans didn't have laws. They had traditions, things they observed, like things you, taboos. Right. And that's yeah. that's more how they do things here, I think. Taboos rather than laws. And uh, there's pros and cons of that. And it seems like the pros outweigh as humans evolve. We have more and more government laws and systems. But but one big problem with it, or at least potentially in, in this world of the wildlings who call themselves free. How many of the teenage girls are free? Yeah, exactly. Like what percent of the population <laughs> is free? You know? like, yeah, free to do what exactly? Yeah. <laughs> and that's something we'll 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 get into a little more in a minute. Yeah, I think well. Nina brings that up another point. Yeah, so let, later on. Let, but... Let's continue on this track of the first mentions. You might recognize the first time the word wildlings is used. It's a very familiar line. We should start back. Garrett urged as the woods began to grow dark around them. The wildlings are dead. <laughs> So yeah, we hear the phrase wildlings technically before Stark or Lannister or Robert or the others, even before the name of the POV character (laughs) that's in this prologue. You don't know who this guy is yet. It's just prologue. It's Will, of course, but his name doesn't, it comes after wildlings. The threat of the others is shown in part by the deaths of, of a few wildlings. And these knights watch both, which is a subtle nod to what's happening here. It's the, these two groups that are at war and apparently have been for a long time, or at least a state of constant violence. War may not be the right term, which already you see the need already in the prologue. Y'all better stop fighting each other and focus on this thing. <laughs> these guys look way more dangerous and they're killing both of you. So right away, the divide between humanity is shown to be a key factor and that it's something that will need to be solved. I think that's pretty cool. I never 
framed the opening moments like that before. There's so many ways to look at it, but it, it didn't strike me that the the, diff, the wildlings being separate from the rest of humanity is revealed in the first two lines. That's pretty cool. So how do you how do you react to that, Sean? Yeah, a thought that I had. I mean, one everything you said, awesome. But another thought that I had is just the idea of, well, a serious thought to my head. Uh, <laughs> the, the idea of wildlings, it's like pretty evocative. When you hear that, you're like, whoa, it sends your mind spinning on what that might mean. Yeah. And one direction you might go is like enraged berserkers. Yeah. But you know that a civilization can't just only be all enraged berserkers. <laughs> At some point, they have to feed their babies and put their pants on or whatever. Everyone, I, I, I think about Metalocalypse sometimes, how this idea of these these, you know, heavy metal stars and just sort of association with the demons and eating bats or whatever, but they still have dinner and they like can't get the remote to worry. They still have regular life and try to envision them always being uber evil. It's just silly. You know what I mean? And along that same line, what I was saying earlier, you think of anarchy, it's almost synonymous with chaos, but that's just not necessarily true. You don't, it's not like there's just total chaos all the time when there's not a central government. The wildlings we see aren't living in total chaos. They have organization, they plan, they have structure, and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, that's true. So like, wildlings might be a little misleading at first, but we learn better through the course of it. And we learn better. John learns better. Does Cersei learn better? She, I don't know that <laughs> she's even said the word wildling or free folk <laughs> at all. That would be a good little trivia Does Pycelle learn better? Or yeah. you know, I could go on and on, but Probably you see my not, point. Yeah. So now here we get into the part about what is and isn't freedom, whether it's a paradox or, or not. And we'll, let's talk about that. And we'll, we'll lead it into with a very cool quote about how from again. But they also live meanly and not free from starvation, from the extremities of cold, from barbaric warfare, or from the depredations of their own kind. The lawlessness beyond the wall is nothing to envy, as any man who has seen wildlings can attest and many have so attested, in a number of works based on accounts from the rangers of the Night's Watch. Their pride in their poverty, in their stone axes and wicker wood shields, and in their flea-infested pelts, is part of the reason they are set apart from the people in the Seven Kingdoms. Definitely some shade in there. Some of that is just, they're proud about all their poor stuff. Like, that's... That's just rude. <laughs> a flea infested probably isn't even that accurate. I mean, flea, there's probably some fleas, but fleas are a way bigger problem in warmer climates, right? Like flea in northern, in colder weather climates, fleas live on a life cycle. They're, they, they're like hibernating. And the, the warmer you go, the more they just, they don't hibernate. They're just around 24-7, 365. And so where Eandel comes from, Old Town, yeah, there's probably lots of fleas, but uh, way up in the north, eh, I don't know about that. <laughs> and he probably associates fleas with poverty. Yes. The wild right. and poverty and poverty, they must all have fleas. Good yeah. point. So he just does it, but he's just not considering it. So it's just quick to denigrate or to assume the worst when the, the science doesn't really add up for that. And another example would be, yeah, the lawlessness and how this goes both ways. The The concept of the grass is always greener. Well, sometimes the grass is not always greener. This is an example of the grass is always, I don't know, burning or the grass is flea infested, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and there's a lot that we can say about where this impression of the free folk comes from in the South and how it's just 
wrong in so many places, or at least misguided, if not entirely wrong. Like they call the South kneelers, right? That's meant to be a pejorative. Like you guys kneel. You're always looking for someone to kneel to. John just kneels to man. Look how quickly you go to your knees. And it's funny when you think about it. Yeah, they do. It is quick. They're quick to just drop to a knee. Really put it and frame it like that way. It is. Yeah, they're really just, they're just quick to obey. Like you're interesting. It is neat. Like some of the things they point out that they've just gotten used to. I find that the cultural divides, George is a really good way of writing those in ways that seem authentic. So the paradox of freedom here is that you have freedom of choice versus the freedom to pursue the life you want. Like the Bill of Rights is the life, liberty, and the pursuit of power. That is the Bill of Rights, right? (laughs) That's the the Declaration of Okay, you're right. The point being, you need to have some order, some law, some structure in order for people to be able to have these basics. It does take some choices away. It does remove some of your options, but it replaces those options with what most people would prefer to have. Like we talked about it in the Disputed Lands last week, how you just, in a place called the Disputed Lands that people are constantly fighting over, how can you raise a family in peace? You probably probably literally can't. And I think that's an important sort of bar to set. Can you raise a family in relative peace without too much chance of everything falling apart or everyone dying? In, In the north of the wall, you probably have less of opportunity to do that. Not no opportunity, certain. On the other hand, there's just way less chance that the entire North is going to be engulfed in civil war, right? There's just not enough leaders to organize everybody to fight on two sides, right? There's just too many people are just going to be like, nah, I'm not going to get involved in that. And that would be okay in this culture to just stand aside. We have, we live in more of a culture where people are told you have to take a side. Sometimes I agree with that. Sometimes I don't. It depends. <laughs> so, Sean, what do you think about some of this? Let's weigh, weigh in Take on the freedom side. paradox. Take, Take a, a side. side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, just the concept of freedom is an interesting, challenging. Like, the, let's just say you're the only person on earth. You theoretically have freedom from oppression or taxes or whatever, but you don't have anyone to talk to you don't do i mean i guess you have freedom of speech but it doesn't matter if there's no one to talk <laughs> yeah, to you yeah, know? Yeah, who cares? and yeah, exactly. you're still like you don't like if you think of freedom as you can do anything you want maybe right but all right you still can't fly you're still subject to gravity and and there are certain things you want to be like if there was no gravity or somehow you're freed from it you'd be flung up into space you <laughs> i don't know it's you you have to Careful what you freedom wish is for. relative. Yeah. It's dependent on other things. And if you want to be in society, maybe you want to have freedom of speech. But you can't, even someone who believes in freedom of speech, for the most part, there's probably someone who makes some weird exception to the rule, but you can't go into the crowded theater and yell fire, yeah. right? You can't stand out, you can't stand outside a preschool and yell obscenities, right? Yeah. You can't blast your music at three in the morning in the neighborhood where people are sleeping and have working. There, you have to make certain compromises of your freedoms for the sake of other people's freedoms, because they have freedom to sleep at night when they have to, you know. So you they have, have freedom to, to not be killed of, by a drunk driver in the middle of the night, things like that, right? Yeah, like, right, yeah. yeah. So it, it gets complicated, and we turn to leaders. We like whether we like people or, or they through might makes right or whatever. They make rules so we can understand what exactly our freedoms and our limitations are, how they might affect other people, and that's how you start to get civilization, community, all the things that kind of sprout from that. And like you were saying, one thing that's important, arguably even the reason for defining rights is to figure out how we can be stable and thrive even. And on one hand, being free, like having the ability to think freely, speak freely, move freely, produce freely, those things help you thrive. 
but also having the knowledge of the rules and the laws. And it, for me to be able to move freely, I need for other people's free movements not impede mine. Yeah. Right? So all these sort of interactions end up with compromises and they might be debated. They might be different in different cultures, but freedom is a tricky word. It is. It really is. And, you, and you're, you're using a lot of examples that I think people will find pretty rational, pretty solid, useful compromises that maybe the nitty gritty of the details of the compromise needs to be worked out. But the general idea is pretty common sense, like almost every example you used. And I think where some of the free folk would say it's going too far is, well, that's not really how the seven kingdoms operates. You have a king that just decides on a whim. A lot, there's certain things that are laws and customs that even a king wouldn't go against. But then you run into someone like Ares that does go against them. Like all these things, like you don't just execute lords. Well, he did. It's, it can happen. And the free folk for sure could be sitting up there going, see, look at that mad king. We told you, that's what happens. Those dumbass kneelers, look what they got themselves <laughs> into this time. <laughs> now everyone's involved. Now the, the entire continent is involved in the sweeping civil war. And yeah, so we're cold and poor, but we're not involved in this giant civil war where everyone's at, at risk. So there's, there's plenty of times where this, the people beyond the wall could be like, see, we told you so. And plenty of times where like right now, <laughs> where the people south of the wall are like, it's good to be south of the wall right now <laughs> when the when winter is coming and the others are coming like suckers yeah. on the wrong side of the wall. Except that's not the decision of their government, right? Right. right. The, well, it may have been. It may have been at some level. Huh? It may have been at some point. That's that's the next topic here, actually. Yeah. Like when the wall was first built. I don't think Brandon the Builder got together a council of elders and was like, should we build a wall? No, it sounds like he just did it. Maybe he had probably had supporters and had to have helpers. You don't take on a project like that without some backing, <laughs> some some logistics. But still, some people back then knew that they were being cut out of the deal. Like their lands were north of where this new wall was being built. They were going to be left on the other side of it. It was a, a, a decision with long lasting repercussions. Some humans were going to be locked on the other side of that wall for all time. And their ancestors would be in that same state of affairs. You say their ancestors would be in that same state of affairs? Sorry, their descendants, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Their descendants would be, yeah. (laughs) Well, last time we talked about how when the Valyrian, the Valyrian policy of hyper-enslaving, I assign blame to them for the fallout when that system collapses because it it is a natural thing to have, grab this much power, it's going to create a power vacuum when it eventually collapses. I wonder if there's a seed of that similar idea that should be applied here. The blame would not be put on the people in this case, though. We put on the others. The others come, they wreck all the stuff. It's rational to make sure that never happens again. Maybe a wall isn't the right way to do that, but it seems like it might work. But it does have the side effect of permanently locking a bunch of people on the other side of it. And that the consequences of that are playing out 8,000 years later, and it played out in between that as well. And that's a pretty interesting thing to consider. Do you have a reaction to that, Sean? I don't know enough about it, but I want to like make a parallel to the Great Wall of China. Mm. And we're going to do whether that or not. The, <laughs> the people north of the wall were, quote unquote, left behind progress. Yeah. But, 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 you know, maybe if you look at them and it, they maybe seem to have less wealth, but A, do they have less happiness? How do you measure that? How many of them starved to death in the 50s? And also, is it as much a function of the, the resources they have and the the wall locking them out from the rest of the population. Yeah. There's so many variables. It's hard to analyze all that, but it's more of a thing. Like you can, you can guess that there would be significant impact. It's not, it's not so easy to pick out which 
differences between these cultures are because of that separation, which are just regular cultural differences that would have happened anyway. We had Jamie on a little while back, and I asked him a question, Jamie Redfern, I asked him a question about how some of these societies that just seem to be, everyone seems to think that they're pretty evil. <laughs> just take an example. And he said, yeah, pretty much any society is going to see themselves as the good guys. That's just human nature, human history. And that's what Agrit's doing with the wife kidnapping stuff. She's like, no, it's a good. She, she, she points the, the good aspects of it, even though we're like, that's, that's not good enough. Like, yeah, there may be some things on the pro column, but the con list is just overwhelming. The, the fact that, yeah, it proves he's tough because he kidnapped you successfully. That's okay. That's true. But <laughs> that's not good enough, you know? But it is why she does that. That's why she makes that argument because partly she sees her people as the good guys. And that extends to these things that aren't good, even though she's right to point to certain aspects of her culture and say, yeah, that is good or that is better. But yeah, not the not the wife stealing stuff. <laughs> no way. There's other factors too. All, all women aren't created equal, right? Some are stronger or faster or smarter than others. And so if Egrette is on the, the, the end of a woman's physique that can hold her own better than another one, she might be more likely to be okay with the idea of, well, you have to stand up for yourself. That's but a, a more frail or younger or whatever else woman, what about someone who's handicapped in some way? Mm. Like it's, you could go on and on with the problems of. Or that line yeah, of thinking. I, yeah. I don't want to beat it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and similar to that, in the South, a, someone who is raised by a noble has no problem with being sold with a dowry because that it's successful for them. They're, they're a they're good family. They're raised to believe that's their purpose yeah. and their mission. And yeah, maybe they want the, the wealth or the stability or whatever that comes with it. They've been taught all their lives what the benefits of that system are and have and the, the downsides have been consistently argued against. Throughout their, their existence, they've heard why it's good and not why it's bad. And the, the arguments as to why it's bad have mostly weren't presented to them. Like, who was going to argue with a grit when she was 10 that this bride ceiling system was wrong. There's only people around her that support it. Same thing in this noble system we're using like a young girl who's married into some other noble family. When has the alternative viewpoint ever even been presented to her? When, when did anyone ever argue that point to her? No, it hasn't. It has always been, this is the way we do it. This is the best way. And most people are just going to accept that and not even question she it. She can't even conceive of a castle, right? She can't even conceive of a building. Here's another angle that... Um, it's not every wildling male is an evil rapist and goes and kidnaps a woman. It's probably, oftentimes, they just fall in love. Their neighbors are part of the same clan. They have some sort of respect for each other. They're in love anyway. They might go through the process, the motions, but it might be an agreement anyway. And Igrit might be lucky to have just been around relatively decent men. Yeah. But there are some not decent men out there who would just steal a girl that's too young, that doesn't care for him at all, that et cetera, et cetera. And it would be a terrible situation. And, and Ogret's answer to that would be like what G.R. Mormont said is wait till he's asleep and kill him. Just cut his throat. Yeah. You know, just do that. Yeah. All you have to do is be a murderer <laughs> to escape slavery. Yeah. It's a tough thing to ask, man. Yeah. Like, and and sometimes they have family that will kill you because they killed you. Blood debt. You killed my brother. I have to kill You're you. You're dependent yeah, on I mean, them for food. Yeah. Yeah. You're not just like, yeah, you're not an independent case, woman. And then also you're kidnapped. Like you've lost all your liberties and agency and resources and everything. It's not. Yeah. yeah. Let's take this take from Nina here. 
Yandel is obviously doing a lot of cultural posturing here. There is some truth to what he mentions regarding the lack of broad, uniform legal protections north of the wall. The free folk are no different from the people south of the wall in that they are a mix of decent, well-intentioned individuals and violent, awful monsters. But unlike in the kingdom south of the wall, there's no overarching central government beyond the wall to prosecute the latter. Nothing's going to stop the Weeper from mutilating his murder victims or Craster from enslaving and raping his own daughters, as well as other women, or Vermeer from using supernatural powers to terrorize his community. Ygritte's answer was that women should be able to defend themselves against men who want to forcibly take them, which is, yeah, that's not a very good argument. That's, that's what we call victim blaming. A weak. A very weak yeah. argument, right? It's just not <laughs> Craster's daughter wives for not standing up to their abusers. It's, yeah, that's, we don't look on that. It's, with, like, it's like if Mike Tyson goes around punching people in the face and you say, hey, you can't do that. He's like, go ahead. You can punch me in the face. I don't care. Like, yeah. that doesn't We both have the okay. freedom to punch each other yeah. in the can face. Can I hit you in the face with a crowbar? That Because that's a little closer to even and you don't want that, do you? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there is, there. it's not the act of hitting is not the only thing. It's the force, the level of force that it does, the damage that's done is part of it. Sure, the act of hitting is wrong in any case, but there's the severity. You cannot subtract the severity from it. Absolutely a baby punching you versus Mike Tyson punching you is not equivalent for a lot of reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Can babies punch? Yeah, I mean, a baby probably wasn't the best example. (laughs) Toddlers can. Okay, toddlers. Yeah, Yeah, like a a toddler can hurt you. Like they can hit you in the ankle with a... (laughs) Uh, something heavy. I don't know. I can, <laughs> can step on your toe. I don't know. They probably can't do the level the of damage. The right, the they're at the right height to get you in a you. sensitive spot. That's true. <laughs> Still not as bad as Mike Tyson. Still not as bad as Mike Tyson. <laughs> yeah. We can definitely look at Igrit's argument there and be like, no, we just do not agree with that. You're wrong, Igrit. This isn't just a cultural difference. <laughs> but other things are just cultural differences, right? Taking Nina's example a little farther, let's say the the Weeper. The Weeper, yeah, good example. No one stops the Weeper. He's just going around murdering people, doing awful things. That's kind of what Ares did, though. <laughs> and he had a lot more means to do it. Gregor Clegane is murdering people, not all he wants, but as long as he's murdering people Tywin wants him to murder and not too many other people, he's getting away with it. So, like, these things still do happen. And they can be worse when they're given those legal those legal protections can work both ways. They usually don't. Like, legal protections working properly, I think, is better than the free what the free folk have with relying on the things to just work out. But the downside is worse, I think, when the, whole, when the government is evil. That's worse than no government, I think. Yeah. The potential of a society when they have standards and rules and expectations and safety nets and everything else, the potential of the society is much greater, I think. Yeah. However, the potential for an individual in that society to do something corrupt and terrible is also greater. Yeah, yeah. So like here and there, you'll have some individual suffering that's worse, but you'll have way less overall as a society. There's also less central executive authority for handling massive scale problems. That's a problem that like areas that lack central governments really struggle with, say, flood relief or any disaster relief or large scale societal problems like racism or public education or which those two things are related. And or the kidnapping of teenage girls. Yeah, yeah, right. Like exactly like huge societal issues, like things that are evil traditions like that. We can call that an evil tradition. I I have no trouble calling that evil. (laughs) That still happens in a real world. Yeah, by the you're way. right. It's With the fathomable, and generally speaking, it happens in remote areas that don't have a lot of central control or oversight or 
regulation or whatever it is. And it's worth noting, like, IGRA accepts this. You know what I mean? It is like when there are things in society that are bad, but you're raised within it, you come to accept it. You may have moments of questioning, especially when you're younger, but eventually, what can I do about this? You know what I mean? And you just have to accept it one way or the other, I guess. I don't, I, it's so hard for me to fathom what most women for most of history have gone through. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Another example as well, starvation. Like that's happening right now, one we can talk about in the North. There, John is trying to organize and Stannis with his people are helping a little bit, trying to figure out a way to keep these people from starving to death. And he's trying to organize systems and structures for that. And he's struggling because there's just not enough food. But it goes to show that in this time of trouble, executive authority is more necessary. And that's sometimes you, why you want it to have it in the first place, because you can't just like summon executive authority when it's needed. Although many systems have tried that. The Romans and their dictator system was like that. In a time of trouble, you elect a dictator, you have a very prescribed length of time they can be in charge only. You got to be very strict with that so they don't seize power. But you have that in the U.S., yeah, you're right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, wartime powers. You're, you're totally right. Like they're more limited than they were, for, say, in the Roman times, but they were similar things. It was usually like something that threatened the entire nation. And in Roman times, it's usually going to be some invading army or something like that. And they're less limited in the U.S. every war we have. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Another factor, I guess, in that is, is just the changing in how many people are involved in wars as well. Anyway, so let's let's move on to the next section, old gods and older gods of what I've called it. And the reason I think this is super important is not just because it's really interesting and George has invented a lot of different belief systems that are really fun and mysterious, but a lot of cultural beliefs, a lot of what cultures decide is good and proper and right or or the opposite is rooted in religion or beliefs in the supernatural, if you don't want to call that religion in some cases. So let's have a quote that takes us into this topic. The countless tribes and clans of the free folk remain worshipers of the old gods of the first men and the children of the forest, gods of the weirwood trees. Some accounts say that there are those who worship different gods, dark gods beneath the ground at the frost fangs, gods of snow and ice on the frozen shore, or crab gods at Sterold's Point, but such has never been reliably confirmed. Whoa, that is really cool. Dark gods beneath the ground, gods of snow and ice, crab gods. Nina says, this is a really fascinating topic that I wish would be explored more in the future, the development of religions in isolation. The farther north beyond the wall you go, the less likelihood there is that large communities or populations have interacted with Westerosi culture south of the wall. Ignoring the influence of southern women captured, right, by with bride stealing stuff, that does occasionally bring new ideas into a community, but generally less of that because they're not generally going to force the newcomers to take on their beliefs. Whatever old gods worship or even pre-old gods worship was like in its earliest human practice in Westeros is possibly what current religious worship is like north of the wall, or at least a less changed version, one that's closer to its original versions, the original practices or the first versions of old gods worship. And you could also see those older versions pre-old gods worship. You might see whatever old god, whatever gods the first men worshiped before they came to Westeros, we know there was some sort of transformation, some sort of overwhelming urge over time to adopt the old gods. And we've talked about that separately with the Isle of Faces and the Pact and all that. But we acknowledge that a lot of those old beliefs not only had to have still existed back then, or even whether in conjunction with the old gods worship, or in some cases, people just refuse to accept the old gods. But even nowadays in Westeros, you still see some of those old stuff in the South. So you better believe it's still happening in the North beyond the walls, and probably an even older, even less 
developed, even less influence from the outside type versions of that. Like sacrifice, the human sacrifice, the blood sacrifice, the stuff Craster's doing, like things we haven't even seen on screen, probably some really weird things, but. A couple thoughts here. Is yeah, this, do it. One is that uh, that's something that's key to modern, I don't know, archaeology, mm. historians, whatever, is that sometimes they'll find a version of the Bible or some tribe like deep, some was in 2000 years ago, some missionary that went down the Nile deep into the jungles of Africa and with the Bible at that moment, but that community was separated from the rest of the world for mm. centuries. And now they rediscover and they're like, oh, look how these differences and the text they had, the belief system they had. It's a good way to find some roots or realities of the original. I, I want to say Christian teachings, but I'm sure it's true for other religions. But oh, that's interesting. Another thought, I wonder if the dark gods beneath the ground, how, how long ago was it to Gormund? G- Gendel, and, Gendel and Gorn? Yeah. How long ago was it that they went through the caverns under the wall? Supposedly several thousand years. It's not It's not known very well. Long ago enough for them to have become gods and be worshipped. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. That's a cool idea. The gods blow. The, yeah. Okay. I didn't think of that. That's a great idea. You never know. Yeah, they could be worshipped. The grid says you can still hear them. Like right? them scratching yeah. around. Like, if there's a belief that they're still there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It could be venerated. Maybe not just a belief. My idea on that as well was... I mean, the children of the forest live in caves and they have godlike powers or could be seen that way. They're certainly able to give people dreams and things like that. So that's a possibility. Like, of course, the others themselves, maybe they live underground when when it's the sun's out or something. I don't know. When they get buried. Yeah, or... But then they rise. And then they rise, yeah, something (laughs) like that. And and remember that we were told that, for example, the free folk were digging graves, right? To find Jorman's horn, the horn of winter. And Egret lamented that they opened half a hundred graves and let all those shades loose in the world. That's always been a line that's, wait, what? <laughs> you did what now? <laughs> <laughs> did that let the others back out? Is that, is that, wait, let's go back to that. <laughs> but they what are just, shades exactly? Yeah. yeah. But this is perhaps related to that. Like Craster worships the others in a sense. He sacrifices to them. That's a sense. That's a type of worship. And is this a similar thing? I don't know. It's very unexplored. What about that creepy burnt werewood that clearly were child's bones in the mouth of the werewood at White Tree near when when John and Mormont and the the Watcher are going on their great ranging? Yeah, lots of possibilities here. I mean, you're right, Sean. They could just be worshiping these, these random sounds that emanate from those are the dark gods. They could just be like sounds, natural sounds, reverberations from... I don't know, just tremors or <laughs> who knows? It doesn't have to be like a, a creature down there, but it could be. <laughs> Even without the sounds, just the legend passed some 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 tribe, some clan who maybe had a member or a, a large percentage of the clan was part of that expedition. Mm. And now the story of them going under, fast forward 2,000 years, those they could be worshiping them. They, could, they, they might not even remember the connection to the original adventure that they were on, but they just know to worship these spirits of our ancestors that are under the ground that control the gateway to the south or whatever, however it got spun. Yeah, it could be like the gods of the of the deep earth. You just, you, you go in there, it's their domain. You You give them something to let you pass in peace or to not get lost or, I mean, we're told, we've seen these cave systems from a variety of different angles and they flat out tell Bran that they're so deep and immense that even they haven't explored them, them all completely and they've been living in them for infinite, <laughs> unmeasurable amounts of time and they still haven't explored them all. So the idea that people besides Gendel got lost down there 
seems pretty likely. <laughs> and so there would be other stories of pray I don't get lost, to pray that I reemerge or pray the dark gods yeah. don't take me. Yeah. Because if someone getting lost, they could conceptualize that as as the, the beings taking them or something like that. There would be different ways to view that reality. Some of them raise their sandals up over their left hand. <laughs> Some of them gather as many sandals as they can. And <laughs> Let us all gather shoes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not sandals in a north. Maybe they're flea-ridden pelts. That's what they <laughs> Yeah, they're flea-ridden pelts in their shoes. Yeah, by the way, going back to just that for a second, I, I, did, I went deeper on that research. I searched for the word flea, see how often it appears. And it almost all, and it pretty much only appears in the South. Like you hear like the like flea bottom, it comes up a lot. That's probably the most common thing. But like people actually dealing with fleas, I haven't seen it. There's no examples in the North that I could find. Maybe there's lice, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a warmer weather thing. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think about that sometimes. It's, the things that maybe are part of our regular <laughs> lives, but there's not a lot of history of them as far as I know. Like I think about, for example, like back pain. Hmm. How many times, how many novels, how many stories from the past does anyone ever talk about having back pain? Hmm. Did no one magically ever have back pain before? Or is this something they didn't write about? People didn't bother to write about fleas, even though they existed. Maybe it's it just like a part, such of a part of regular life yeah. or not worthy of the pen on paper. Yeah. I don't know. Now, I don't want to give the wrong impression that there aren't fleas in cold places. There certainly are. They're just, they proliferate a lot less. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, moving on from fleas and open to graves and all sorts of things that are unpleasant. So this idea of isolated people, of separated people, something we talked about a little before, with the breaking of the world, when the arm shattered, whether that was natural or not, it certainly created a new, larger sense of isolation. Certain parts of, of Dorne, Dorne became more isolated. It was already somewhat isolated from the rest of Westeros, given the, the mountains and the desert, but it was cut off from Essos, where it had been a land bridge. Potentially, other places were separated as well and became more isolated, whereas before they weren't. So this is a microcosm of that. Westeros used to be more whole, it used to be probably less plagued by the type, the type of winter it was. If we take our longstanding theory that the seasons used to be regular, being trapped beyond the wall wouldn't have been as big a deal before they realized the seasons were out of whack. If you only have to have a three-month winter beyond the wall, it's not so bad as if you have to live three years of winter or even more. They may not have known what they were getting into <laughs> when they were like, yeah, I'm going to live on this side of the wall. I prefer it over here. Oh, damn. <laughs> this isn't what I expected. The world has changed more than I thought. But those beliefs, all these different concepts merge, sort of coalesce into a decision tree as to why someone, now assuming, assuming they even had the choice in the first place to live beyond or above the wall. It's, some people may not have had that choice, but some people probably did. When the wall was first starting to get built, it's not like, oh, I've got 10 seconds to choose. This is a 300-mile <laughs> structure. Like You have time to decide, I think. I think that stands to reason. I don't know for sure, but I feel like people weren't like, you got to decide now. They had some time to, to make a decision maybe. But they may not have had all the information. That's what I'm getting. They may not have known. I mean, after the defeat of the others, all these new kingdoms are forming. Everything is new. There's just, the world is unsettled at this point. At post-long night, you're not returning to a status quo. It's a whole new status quo. So it's something we keep coming back to. What it must have been such a difficult time, but also a very interesting time of, of new decisions and new, new everything, you know, new starting over. So that we, we can't leave the wildlings, the free folk out of that discussion because all this diversity that we see that the South isn't so aware of, it extends all the way back to these times some 8,000 years ago. I don't, a lot of this began then rather than happened after, although it's probably both. 
I was just thinking about the idea that some people would not have even known it was happening. Right? Okay, yeah, like, you're right. People in the vicinity of the wall, but think how far north that land goes. In fact, let me ask you a question. How far north, the north, the most northern spots where people live that we know of, how far north of that is the wall compared to that equidistance south of the wall? That's a tough question. I mean, we don't even know how far north people live. Like the Valley of the Fens is really far. Like it's farther north than I think White Harbor is from the wall and White Harbor. And the north is huge, right? I think, I think you... Right, yeah. So it's not so, clear, to be honest. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like the farthest north that we know of. Yeah. But, it, but let's say at the time the wall was being built, if someone in White Harbor wanted to go up north, they were losing that option too. Now, yeah. Maybe they wouldn't want to go. Maybe they didn't even know Brandon Builder was making that wall in yeah. White Harbor. You know what I mean? There would have been, especially farther north, assuming that they were like uh, smaller clans rather than big cities that weren't constantly traveling back and forth hundreds of miles away. They wouldn't have known a wall was coming. And so they might not have cared. Might not have Why made, not have... But didn't change their life. They kept milking the same cow and harvesting the same lemon trees or whatever else they were before. Didn't know or care that the wall was built. It might be something more aggressive too. Remember what Stannis does. When he lets the wildlings through the wall, he makes them burn a piece of weirwood and swear to him and swear to Relor. It's pretty intense and pretty like yeah. Nazi-ish or whatever. Like, it's like, <laughs> oh. Cultish. <laughs> yeah, it's least, really, yeah. it's scary. It's not a good look for Stannis. It's one of, it's not, it's one of his lower points, I think. Although he is, is still framed with him saving people. So it's not entirely, it's not just straight up evil, of course. I'm not going, I wouldn't go that far. Here, as I'm comparing it to Nazism. <laughs> It's not evil, no, no. Anyway, uh, you get my point. The thing is that Brandon the Builder, let's assume he's the one that that made this call. He may have been like, no, you can't live on this side of the wall unless you adopt the old gods, unless you follow these new rules Mm -hmm. that were put in place to make sure none of this ever happens again. Or maybe without that last part, maybe just I'm in charge now. I'm telling you how it is. Take it or leave it. If you want to live in this new kingdom, you got to follow these rules. Otherwise, you get on the other side of this wall and do whatever the hell you want. Here's another key thing, Aziz. Let's say that he did make sure that everyone, he sent envoys as far north as they could go, let everyone know this is going to take years and years. You've got time to migrate if you care, da, da, da. And some people knowingly decided to stay. What about their kids, kids, kids? Yeah, they may not want that. They weren't yeah. part of that decision. They didn't have, now they're stuck up there whether they want to be or not. So it's a... That's a f- unfair. We actually I have guess, a quote you know? later in the episode from Igrit that expresses that type of frustration that it was like, your ancestors did this. You blah, blah. Yeah, and we'll get to that. It's it's uh, it's a good point. It's it's a worthy subtopic to bring up. It probably seemed like a good idea 50 years ago yeah. when we started building all the oil wells and refineries and automobiles. And, and it was, we got a lot of value from it, but we didn't understand the results of posterity, how it was going to affect the environment and so on. Yeah. But some people did even then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't uh, wide. We could say the knowledge but, wasn't widespread. Yeah. Yeah. But people now who had nothing to do with those decisions have to deal with the repercussions. Yes, yes, you're right. And that's that's a very that's very true in Westeros because it's something that George seems to take a lot of care in making sure is part of the story. He, he That line that comes to mind is, we dance on the strings of those who came before us, right? Which you're expanding that to several generations farther back. Tyrion was referring more to like recent generations, but he would of course agree that it includes farther back. The influence is there as well. It's just maybe a little more prominent with those people that your your father was a little more of an influence than your great, 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 great grandfather, for example. More direct. More the direct. influence might actually be greater than when you go farther You're back. right, actually. But it's, more, it's more definable 
when you're closer. Like Lan the Clever prop may have had a bigger impact than Tyrion's great 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 grandfather, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> that guy is the reason they have Casterly Rock. Like, yeah. <laughs> Tywin would still have a huge impact on Tyrion no matter what, as long as he was still his his dad, his father. But <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So here's another quote that resembles what you were getting into about just what else is up there? What's north? What's even farther north? We don't know. But we've got some curiosities. Quote. Rangers of the Night's Watch speak of still stranger peoples who dwell in the more distant corners of the lands beyond the wall, of bronze-clad warriors from a hidden vale far to the north, and hornfoots who go barefoot even over ice and snow. We know of the wild people of the frozen shore who live in huts of ice and ride sleds pulled by hounds. There are half a dozen tribes who make their homes in caverns, and rumors tell of cannibals in the upper reaches of the icy rivers beyond the wall. But few rangers have penetrated more than half a hundred leagues into the haunted forest, and doubtless there are more kinds of wildlings than even they can imagine. Right, like just like you were saying, Sean, there's got to be more than even that tucked away some isolated peoples. I mean, it sounds a little odd, maybe if if it's not a topic you've heard a lot about, but that's still true now on Earth. There are still tribes in the deep Amazon and other places around the world that have had literal zero contact with, say, white folk or, or whatever modern people or very little contact. And some of those places are specifically protected. They're like, Governments are like, no one can go here. We're there. This is a protected tribe. We're not going to let anyone go there. There's a couple of them where people have tried, and the tribes are so violent that they've been killed. There's been a couple of tribes that, that are, to this day, will kill you if you approach their island or whatever. So, and on Earth, like right now in 2021. So, yeah. So, the fact that this is, this is not a fantasy it's thing at all. 2022. very real. Living in a past disease. Oh, shoot. I am. 2022. <laughs> it's still, is it, has it changed now? And now <laughs> in 2022, it's uh, all the tribes yeah. are now, everyone enrolled in preschool. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's just yeah no it all changed 2022 is the great the great changeover no yeah it's not strange at all it's penetrating 100 leagues into the honda forest penetrating hundreds of leagues into the amazon i mean it's just a similar kind of concept it's hard to go in there man <laughs> like unless you're from there which a lot of these tribes are they're from there so they it's more natural to be there but yeah, it's it's wild to think about it, like how deep the Amazon is, or how some of these uh, these isolated peoples are, and it's a it's a fascinating subject. But it's also one we don't know a lot about because that's the whole point. They live in isolation. We don't know that much about them, <laughs> like hardly anything, right? Like, what language do they speak? Is it some homegrown language of entirely of their own? Does it maybe have roots in some other ancient language that maybe some other nearby tribes have? Really, really diverse and different. And yeah, you could say there's things they all have in common, like they all have. They all use wood. They all make fires. But those aren't, that's not really a cultural hallmark, is it? Like the poverty thing. It's not, it's not a unique characteristic. That's not something that identifies them, doesn't separate them from lots of other cultures. But when you think of, what you hear of things, I don't know, people who don't wear shoes in the North, that is a little more unique. <laughs> that's a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. What about cannibalism? That's pretty damn awful, but it is not common. <laughs> so we can call that unique as well. And as it says there, I, I don't others. think the hornfoot thing is just cultural, though. I mean, that's evolutionary, right? It, there's probably both. It's probably I don't yeah. think I don't think uh, you or I or a southerner could do that without yeah, losing a we foot. Couldn't get used to it. There's, there's got to like, be. We some could toughness. not. We literally could not get used to that enough to not lose our feet. 
Yeah, maybe not. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like a lot of horn feet people lose their feet too because it's just oh, too, yeah. Yeah. which is that's part of it, why it's cultural, I think, because they keep doing it even though it could be, <laughs> even if it's an evolutionary thing, it might lead to a cultural thing. Yeah. Well, I was thinking more like I'm a little bit more the opposite that it's a cultural thing that leads to an evolutionary thing. Yeah, keep the feet moving. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, look at things like traditional foods. If some, if like a culture eats a traditional food and that food has specific characteristics that make you a little taller or make you a little shorter. I mean, that's, that's a thing, right? Like, for example, we talked about those Peruvians too. Yeah. Like uh, different you know. people's cultures developing on different foods. So subsistences has an impact on their nutritional profile as a culture. For example, like the average Japanese person is like five inches shorter than the average Dutch person. The Dutch people aren't better. The Japanese people aren't better. But they're, th- this is a substantial difference in height. It, it, obviously, it has nothing to do with superiority, but it's, it's, it's a difference, right? It's an academic difference, perhaps, but it is a difference, right? So, yeah. But is it cultural? Is it? I don't think you know, it's cultural because I don't I think, think it has anything to do with to- like food choice. Like it's available food, not like we prefer this. Oh, food. I think a good choice, a good option to be, like example to me would be like lactose intolerance, ah, about eating yes. cheese and dairy and all that. Which is an evolutionary. Thing. Yes, but it's also a cultural thing. Yeah, yeah, it's both. You're right because you you culture like certain ethnic groups have better digestive enzymes for dairy, and that's that's evolutionary. Yeah. But you're but it could have come from culture because they develop that yeah. by drinking lots of milk thousands of years ago yeah. <laughs> and their bodies adjusted. Yeah, people in your community that weren't able to eat that milk started death because there were nomads and there wasn't not other food available. And then that also leads to other things I mentioned just before one time, but that was a big advantage that Genghis Khan and the Mongols had is they were not lactose intolerant yeah, where true. the Chinese were as a general statement. And so they had mobile food sources when they went off with their calories and such. And that's a pretty substantial difference, especially over thousands and thousands of soldiers. If it's just like a few people, you can get around it. But yeah. So of course, um, the bl- bronze-clad warriors, that's obviously the Fens. We talked about them briefly. There's That's something we could probably do a whole episode on, just them, their differences. And if they have ironworking, or sorry, metalworking, bronzeworking, really, which means they have forges. That means they have tin. And a lot of aspects of their culture that resemble of cultures in the South, which goes to show, I think is maybe one of George's ways of showing that some of these differences are just somewhat circumstantial or based on available resources. A lot of cultures, their development is entirely influenced by weather, available food, neighbors, things like that. And the Fens, apparently they had a really choice spot in the North. They have a valley that's fairly fertile amidst lots of harsh lands. Think maybe the high mountains of Dorne, where once you get out of the desert, you've got some some fertile areas that are a little more are more humid. So there's it can support crops or grazing, things like that. There's pockets of terrain that are a lot more habitable. And the Fens are the people that won out. They they conquered that veil or maybe they took it from someone else. Maybe they defended it against all maybe they merged with other peoples in ancient times. But as we alluded, they just came on at first. Yeah, maybe they, yeah, finders keepers. We we have no idea, but we know that they, they're forced south now because of the, the troubles. And they're one of the communities that's going to have a little harder time, maybe agreeing with some of the other ones. On the other hand, New Magnar married uh, Alice Karstark. (laughs) So in some ways they Mm -hmm. fit in better because they have this sort of obedience thing that fits, that's closer to the way Southerners operate. Of course, I'm talking Southerners south of the wall. In this case, not Southerners like 
not Northerners. <laughs> Getting into that confusion of uh, what's all in where you're standing bit. But yeah. Here's a little another take from Nina that I think is uh, really useful here. She says, this paragraph really highlights the problem of the flow of knowledge in Westeros. In order to have an understanding of the various free folk communities, there has to be an incentive among the Night's Watch to perform this kind of study since the Night's Watch has the only regular access to these communities. It's certainly not impossible given the travels of the people like that Ranger Redwin, who Sam notes does trading and went to Lauren's Point and the Frozen Shore and all these really remote areas. It's also unlikely given the antagonism between. There's just not a lot of friendship between the Rangers and the Wildlands. It definitely happens. There's definitely trade between the Free Folk and the Watch, like at the wall. Like even as much antagonism as there is, we all we know that there's straight up just people, Free Folk show up, do trade, you know, trade and then leave. And it's, it's Totally cool. But on the other hand, just think about who some of these people are. A lot of the rangers aren't even from the north. They were people that like, maybe they were like originally like a criminal from Dorne, right? <laughs> How is a criminal from Dorne going to judge someone from the frozen shore as compared to say someone who was born at Winterfell? I'd say it's going to look pretty different. Like you come from a much different environment and there's going to be more of that judgment. The farther south you go, the more the wildlings are going to be like this, this strange thing that just you've never seen. The stories are going to get wilder and wilder and less close to accurate because rumor mill and, and the denigration is going to get more. Like Sam's dad, like Randall Tarley was just like, he's the poster boy for wildling prejudice, right? You got to figure that's not that unusual. Maybe not that severe, that outspoken, but that attitude, maybe a muted version of that, internalized more. I was about to say, you were pointing out how is the criminal from Dorne going to perceive them? How is the Lord from Dorne going to perceive them? Yeah, not right? much better. Yeah. And in mm -hmm. the earlier times in the wall, it was more populated by mm, nobility than, than criminals. or So the, the earlier people who maybe thought of themselves as better in the first place or more likely to judge these savage wildlings, they, they would have set the precedent for perception for posterity. Yeah, and it goes How both... about that alliteration, nice. huh? Yeah, good one. <laughs> and it goes both ways, right? If you have all these, like as the Night's Watch declined in quality of human as it became less... Now, of course, there's plenty of crappy nobles. But there's always that There's yeah. always that caveat. But clearly, if you have a place where a large percentage of them are like rapists, and some of the worst criminals, yeah, that's going to be worse on average than, than the, even the like crappier knights and lords. So these are the people, a lot of them, ranging. And over time, greater and greater number of them are this criminal element rather than volunteers who are probably going to be a, a, of a better class of human if they're volunteering for this. So the free folk over time are going to have this impression of who the rangers are. And it's gradually worse over time as you have more of the scumbags are going out there and judging them and coming back to report on it. This is the guy that you're getting your information from? This guy who like raped 20 women on the other one it went before he got caught? This is your source <laughs> on these tribes? Yeah, so Nina, when Nina points to the flow of information, there's a lot of issues <laughs> with the mm. actual information and the quality of information and who it's coming from. Some of it's going to be good. But it's not like the maesters are up there for the most part, and even they have their prejudices. So you got real prejudice, real bad people that can't be trusted as some of our main source of information. Now, I shouldn't denigrate the rangers all that much, but you, you, that element's there. Some of them are going to come back with quality, like Corrin Halfhand. Great guy, right? Honest guy. Respected the wild. Like he saw them as just a different type of people. He's like, yeah, they're our enemies, but they're people. They're human. He doesn't see them as just 
a monolith of evil. But there's also the the people that killed Gior Mormont. All those guys, Clubfoot Carl and Carl of Gin Alley, all those guys, like, apparently it's Carl's. Sorry, Carl's. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's, it, this is a lot of that. Give Carl Sagan a bad name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Carl Sagan helps balance it back out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's got a C, Carl. That's true. If it's, if, you're, if it's Carl with a Q, yeah. <laughs> or, or a K. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just real quick, there's some of the other names. We talked about the Thens. There's also the Cave Dwellers, which isn't really a title. That's just a, like a categorization of tribes or clans. There's the Hornfoots, which is more specific. Those are the ones that don't wear shoes or boots. The Ice River Clans, which that's where a lot of the cannibalism is. There's the night runners. I have no idea what that is. Most I, likely to run in the night. <laughs> that's why I'm voting them. One of the, yeah, they superlatives run the night, yeah. that Sean wants. <laughs> Most likely to run. <laughs> the long they ran throughout the long night. You know, so I don't know what that means. It's just a name that George threw out there. There's the frozen shore men. For an example of them, there's the, the walrus tusk. Fro- frozen shore man and the antler tusks or antler wearing frozen shore man. And these two groups don't like each other. Someone in the South wouldn't necessarily know that distinction. They wouldn't know that the walrus tuskers don't like the antler men. It's kind of like a, like a house thing. Like they've got their sigil. You know, that's the way for them to mark, to identify each other out in the wild. And uh, those people, for example, they're known for raiding Bear Island. Whereas other peoples in different parts of beyond the wall would raid different parts of the North more regularly. Language is another thing. Let's talk about language for a minute. Nina says, this is one area where I feel like George is showing that he isn't a linguist using, that's his words, a la J.R.R. Tolkien, who is an expert. <laughs> the, the free, who is like an actual philologist. That's the word, right? Philologist, I think. The free folk have been physically separated from the south of Westeros for the better part of 8,000 years with people like Egrit and Tormund still speak basically the same common tongue John does. You could chalk up some lingering common tongue to captured women from the South, but still you'd think the language of the free folk would be more alien to Southerners, especially non-Northerners, more a mix of old tongue and common. I get as a narrative reason why he doesn't do this. It's a lot easier for characters, especially multiple characters to interact with them if they all speak the same language, but she thinks that it's maybe not the most realistic thing. Well, it's hard to argue. She's probably got a point there, but it is what it is. Basically, George says he gives them like accents. Like they say, there's certain words they say slightly differently. So he just does that, but it's just a mute, watered down version of, of what Nina thinks would be more realistic. So yeah, I think she's. I think it's a fair criticism. It's a it's a problem for fantasy and sci-fi. Oh yeah, that languages would be different. It's hard to tell the story when the characters can't interact. And so yeah. the Vulcans and the Klingons and the human they all speak the same language, or you come up with some translator yeah, technology this... that just works magically, but. You guys just have to accept it for the sake of the story. This is a little off topic, but a little related. It just makes it kind of makes me think of The Dark Crystal. There's a story behind the, the first version of the movie, The Dark Crystal by Jim Henson, where he just put it in a fantasy language. He just put it in a fake language with subtitles. And mm. audiences hated it. They hated it so much. Like, even though yeah, that is more realistic, they would speak not speak English, English yeah. in this other world. Like, it's ridiculous, the idea that they would speak English words. You know, these creatures. Yeah. But it's just, it just doesn't work. We, we need it. It's for the narrative purpose. <laughs> One of my favorite examples of this, you're right, Sean. It's like almost pretty much every sci-fi or, or fantasy s- story has to account for this one way or another. And they do it differently. And my favorite is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where we've heard of the Tower of Babel, which is the, the, the 
biblical story about the different language. It involves lots of things, but there's the, the language aspect of it is important. And in, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, everyone gets fitted with a babble fish. You just implant it in your ear and it, it understands every language. <laughs> it's, like, it's a really impressive species that can interpret any language and then it just translates it. And then it just never, hardly ever gets mentioned again, if at all. It's just, you get one and then boom, you can understand every language in the universe and then you don't talk about it anymore. <laughs> That's pretty good. But, but we see there is some of this, like the Thens, a lot of the Thens don't speak common. They speak the true tongue or the old tongue rather. So there is still some of that element, that, that realism when the distance is greater so that's a whole nother thing. I'm not, I, I don't know a lot about language. It's a topic that I sometimes don't have enough to say about that I'm fascinated by. I'm cu- very curious about how it works in the real world, but it's, yeah, I can't, I can't say that I'm super knowledgeable about it. As George would also I mean, say. just think yeah. about France and Germany are not that far apart. And in Italy and in Russia, they all speak different languages. They're all right next to each yeah. other and have been for, for almost, well, I guess they've been sure next to each other for more than all of history, <laughs> right next to yeah, each other. True. And they, they speak different languages. So even, I don't know, within those countries, China, within China, there's two central languages that get spoken and others. So That's it's, true. Uh, again, you know, like, no need harping on this too much. It's, it, it, it is a issue of realism that we're willing to accept for the sake of, I don't know, story. I want to say for the sake of entertainment, but we get a lot more than pure entertainment out of this. You get yeah. all sorts of insights into human nature and on and on. Right on. Kartik says, History of Westeros, are you going to reveal how many printed shirts Aziz has? The guess <laughs> is 32. Get your guess in mind real quick. What's your guess, John? 132. Well, you are closer, <laughs> but you go, <laughs> probably over. You go, but yeah, Ashea yeah. counted ninety-one. Ninety-one. Aziz has ninety-one print shirts. It does not count his plain colored shirts or buttoned shirts or any of that colored shirts. So, <laughs> yes, he has. I definitely quite a need wardrobe. at least nine more then. Yeah, yeah, we do need nine more at least. That's right. <laughs> Next uh, question from Christina Kidel. I'm sorry if I said your name wrong. That's a really cool last name you have there. She says, I'm begging you guys to touch on Aboriginal oral history just one time when you talk about stories and songs. Please, for me, fall down that rabbit hole. I tell you what, Christina, if someone, a podcaster or someone that would be willing to come on, send send us information. I don't know anyone that I could bring on for that. I would love to have a, a knowledgeable guest for that. That would be even better than us researching it because we'd have somebody that actually knows really well rather than just what we can come up with. Failing that, I accept your challenge that we'll do it on our own, but I would rather try to find a a cool guest to bring in. So if anyone out there has a podcast they listen to that touches on this, some some show they know they're aware of, at least someone that has this kind of knowledge that you're aware of, tell us, give us point us in that direction and we'll see if we can arrange something. Because I think that's, you're right. That would be given our penchant for real world inspiration and real world influences. This is a it should be. It's on the must-do list, I think. As big a part of the Song of Ice and Fire it is, as big a part of, as much of unwritten history as a part of the Song of Ice and Fire, uh, th- this would be helpful to us as well as just a good thing to know some things about. So we'll come back to that. Uh, Dornish Dame says, I think the diversity of the free folk is another clue to the first men not being all the same. Yeah, they had common traditions and customs, but they weren't all identical. Yeah, great point. It's, it's a reverse clue. The first men were told they couldn't have just been one massive cultural group that all came over and were identical. It's just been lost over time. This is some of that original disposition is probably maintained with some of these tribes that have developed in isolation. Now, of course, all this time passing, they've changed from their original state somewhat, but it proves the original, say, ingredients were different, I suppose. Very good take, Dornish Dame. 
I was going to ask it just following up on the superlatives, maybe if we think of maybe the, the Lannisters are the wealthiest house in the house in the South mm. and the, are the Starks the oldest, one of the it's oldest, not at really least. clear who the oldest. Yeah. It might be. House but could, could we, could we think of parallels to the tribes in the North? Do we know enough about them to say which one might be the wealthiest or the oldest or the, the largest or et cetera? The wealthiest might be the Thens, but oldest, no idea. Biggest, also no idea. That could also be the Thens. The Thens are like the maybe the largest, like contiguous, like the closest thing to a nation up there. So given that development, they might have more of a defined structure. Might be easier to count, get numbers on, but it's but we're still not given it. And it's changing. It's a developing situation given all the, the death and winter and displacement of all free folk populations, pretty much. That's throwing a big monkey wrench into the whole thing. It might be interesting to see who survives, like which ones are still around afterwards, too. That might be a part of people going back to the north to repopulate these areas now that winter has retreated. And are they just going to go back to their original spots or people are going to be like, no, this is mine now. It's finders yeah, keepers yeah. like you lo- you left. So it's mine now. That kind of thing. I don't know. Like people, will humans go back to basic awful humanity or will there be some sort of treat each other well, at least for a generation or <laughs> who knows? Yeah. Big questions. Big questions. Also, shout out to anyone supporting us on Patreon. We have released our Brandon the Builder episode as of a few days ago. And Brandon, the buildings of Brandon is in production. That one's going to be Patreon only. So if you want to get some of our extra scripted episodes, we've got several now that are Patreon only. That number is going to go up a good bit this year. That's one of our goals for this year to have to increase the amount of episodes in our Patreon catalog. So by the time you're hearing this, it may already be larger. Trying to give you all as much incentive on our end to sign up and give us monthly support and try to make uh, it worth your while. And uh, if you haven't listened to Brandon the Builder yet, you might appreciate that the video is completely accurately subtitled. You can turn on the subtitles and it is accurate. It's something that we've both really wanted for a long time. And going forward, I think all of our scripted episodes should have subtitles, which is yeah, great we, for, for accessibility for people. Me personally, I always turn subtitles on when I'm watching something. It helps me a lot and I'm not even hard of hearing. So I, I can't imagine for anyone else. So hopefully you can recommend that to anyone who maybe couldn't listen to us before. That's really nice. It's, it's, been, it's, been, it's been great that the changes, the podcast industry is growing and that's giving us more tools with, to do things like this. And yeah, we'll, we'll do what we can to make it better, make our, the enjoyment of our show better. And if you all have ideas out there, folks, to make it more accessible, we're all ears for ideas. And when she says accurate subtitles, she means that even like your Patreon nicknames are spelled properly. Yeah. <laughs> with the subtitles. Yes. So yeah, Ashea put a lot of effort into that. So thanks, Ashea. It's exciting. All right, let's talk influences for a bit. Sean, you brought up some little tidbits about history before. There's another spot for it here. When George R. R. Martin was first imagining the wall, and again, think of that first scene because the scene with the wild, with the chasing the wildlings and, and Brand's first chapter, some of these are some of the first moments he imagined before sitting down to actually put pen to paper or keyboard to finger when writing Game of Thrones for the first time. He was inspired by Hadrian's Wall. He thought about it, imagined, of course, a much larger version of it, and he, he put himself in the place of a Roman legionary, standing guard on that wall, looking out into the vast frozen north, at the darkness and what else was out there, and just what mindset that would put you in, all the places your imagination would go and... And while George's imagination 
being more robust than most, it went to places like the others and <laughs> the long nine, things like that. But picked like wildling is an exonym. An exonym is a name that you give to a different group. An endonym is the name the group calls itself. So the free folk is the endonym because they call themselves free folk where wildlings is what the Southerners call them. Picked is that same thing. The Picts did not call themselves Picts. Picts is what the various groups of non-Romanized people living beyond Hadrian's Wall were called by the Romans. So it's just like people below south of the wall call everyone north of the wall wildlings. The Romans called everyone north of Hadrian's Wall the Picts. So, and it was probably meant to be a little bit insulting, but not everyone who used it meant it that way. It's a little bit of a pejorative, but it's also like in reference to tattooing. Pitch, imagine this. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Tattooing that color woad, which is blue face paint. There's already a lot of that apparently in the region. So this is a possible origin for that name. So again, Picked like wildling is not a term that denotes one ethnic or cultural group. It's a catch-all. It is not very descriptive. It's just a group name created by another by a, another group. So just like it is in real life, the stories and sources can vary, and there's a lot of variety. What picked meant in the third century was different than what it meant in the seventh century, and so forth. In the second century, it was Caledonia. Well, was the, they were the Caledonians, and and by the 9th century, the Picts were kind of unified. They combined with the kingdom of Dalriada, I'm probably saying that wrong, to form the kingdom of Alba. I, I probably said that right. Yeah. <laughs> probably, maybe not. I mean, I was like, Elba. I'm like, damn it. Al-Bay. Al, yeah, Al-Bay, yeah. <laughs> but also like free folk culture, despite it being a kingdom, despite it having all these different aspects to it, there were no towns north of Hadrian's Wall until about the 12th century. And the one town that was threatened to become a town north of the wall was Hardhome, which is another thing we'll, we'll cover separately. It's a whole other topic. That'll get its own episode. Didn't form until somewhat recently, and, and then it was destroyed. The Picts used Cranogs a lot, which is cool. Another little tie-in. Cranog is like a floating island, like a man-made island, basically, which you could grow crops on or fish on or whatever. Lots of things you can do. And lots of pastoral land north of uh, Hadrian's Wall. Lots of hunting, herding. And falconry, which falconry is a lot of times associated with more upscale, like nobility. But the Picts did it too, which is, goes to show that, you know, they had their own version of upscale and they had their own version of nobility. Just isn't the same as the Southern Kingdoms. But they didn't write as much. It wasn't as much written. So their history, their version of history didn't carry forward as much. It didn't survive the way books did and, and more powerful kingdoms. Their history was the one that captured more of the historical narrative. One source says there were seven Pictish kingdoms, by the way, which is a neat little, probably just a coincidence, probably because seven is just a number, like seven, like lots of things are seven, right? But still, it it, it creates more familiarity here. That's all pretty cool, huh, Sean? That's neat, like a little, I didn't know a lot of that. I knew about the Picts like vaguely, but I didn't know a lot of of the stuff about like the the development of that territory. It's something I want to read more about later. Yeah, same. Another thought I had along the same line, the I think a lot of the quote-unquote barbarian tribes that we think of, that again, I'm not really an expert on, but the, the Goths, the Visigoths, and the, those European, like, I want to say Germanic tribes. I don't know if that's a catch-all or Germanic on its own, but, but anyway, they were mostly like in the wake of Caesar. They were, I think they were mostly like post-common era, where leading up to that was the Gauls. Yeah. But the Gauls were like 60 different tribes. Yeah. It wasn't just the Gauls. There was like dozens and dozens of different tribes made up 
the goal. It was a Gallic confederation that warred against Caesar. Yeah, they were. That's yeah. There was like Vercingetorix was like elected the war leader of multiple tribes. You're right. You're totally right. Yeah. So this is a similar thing. They, that's an example where they actually did manage to come together to fight a common enemy. Whereas a lot of times, conquerors would be conquerors used to divide a divide and conquer strategy would prevent them from linking up, prevent them from becoming allies in order, and would use like subterfuge and intrigue to prevent that. Just a lot of the Chinese emperors would do to keep the Mongols from uniting. It's the whole king beyond the wall thing, right? You don't want there, you don't want all those, if those tribes keep fighting each other, no big deal. But if they unite and become one, look out. And that's, that's what Genghis Khan did. And indeed, we see the results of that. It was epic, devastating, and huge, and changed history forever. And yeah, whoa. So you can see why they didn't want that to happen. <laughs> like why the Chinese <laughs> were like, don't let them unite, y'all. Don't let that happen. Moving on to fantasy influence, because the Picts were very prominently used by some other people, like by name, maybe not in true historical context, but the phrase was used most notably by Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan the Barbarian, who George is heavily influenced by. I am a big fan of Robert E. Howard's writing. It's old school. There's some things in it that are, don't work so well in modern times, but it's the writing is really clever. It's really fun. He used Picts and he identifies with the Picts personally. Robert E. Howard said he's like, I feel like out of all the people I put in my worlds, that's the one that he feels like he's the closest to. They were in his Call series and his Conan series. The, 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 the Picts were mortal enemies of the Sumerians, which is Conan's people. So they've been like enemies forever. And Call, Call the Conqueror, which was like an, a, that has ties to Atlantis. The Picts were part of that story as well. They were allies of Kull, whereas they were enemies to Conan. There was a last king of the Picts named Bran Mockmorn. Bran, yeah, and he was associated with mm. ravens and all this, of course, because mm. the name Raven. I mean, Bran means raven in Welsh, so that's that's not, that's of course it does that, but. Uh, yeah, it's more like a shared root that they both have right. than, yeah. You're right. Yeah, Shay nailed it there. So also H.P. Lovecraft, coming back to him, also used Bran MacMorn because he was friends with Robert E. Howard. And so in the pre-internet era, when they communicated entirely by handwritten letter, <laughs> funny story, H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard were corresponding quite a bit. And, and Lovecraft drove down to, I'll come hang out with you for six weeks. And he arrived and discovered that Robert E. Howard was like 14. Whoa, oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't have yeah. story. I got to hear more about that. Robert Howard was a really good writer. And H.P. Lovecraft was like, uh, first How old was H.P. Lovecraft? He hung out. What's that? How old was he at the time? Like 32 or something, oh, wow. I think. I he just, and he stayed there for six weeks, just hung out with the family, just slept over, and they wrote <laughs> stories together. And yeah, like Lovecraft was a, had awful beliefs, but he treated other writers really well. He wasn't an ageist, <laughs> apparently. He wasn't an ageist. Yeah. <laughs> He's just racist. He was also just, holy crap, this kid can really write. <laughs> like, I, yeah, he, I thought you were in all this time. The way he writes had him just form the opinion that he was, you know, a more fully formed person. <laughs> but no. So anyway, picks, some picks could turn into werewolves in um, Howard's stories as well. So a little bit of skin changing, but that's also more of a common origin story than something that like he invented himself. Obviously, werewolves weren't invented by <laughs> Robert E. Howard. So that's pretty cool. That's something there's more there that we want to maybe dig into someday. I've always had this, this idea that maybe one day we would take a few of the Conan stories that have the most significance with Song of Ice and Fire, maybe take tackle those as, as a fun subtopic. So here's me throwing that out there as an idea to see if any of y'all respond positively or negatively to that. But let's move on to 
The concept of a raiding culture, this is something we could talk about in a lot of different ways. It applies to a lot of different cultures, real world and in world here. This is not a comprehensive look at it, but we definitely need to talk about it some. We'll start off with a quote. The wildling raiders troubled the realm largely for iron and steel, things they lacked the skill to make themselves. Many raiders are armed with weapons of wood and stone, even of horn in some cases. Some carry bronze axes and knives, but even those are considered valuable. Famous war leaders amongst them often sport stolen steel, sometimes taken from rangers of the watch whom they have killed. Now, this I would say there's even more just prejudice, just denigrating the wildlings, saying things they lack the skill to make themselves. I don't think that's the reason because it might be, but I don't think that's the reason because, for example, the Thens have forges. They make weapons of bronze. I don't think it's skill. I think it might be they don't have the raw materials. They might not have the skill. They might not. They like the wherewithal might be a better phrase. Yeah. Because I think part of it is you have to get to a certain heat. Yes. And so to do steel, th- yeah. there's part technology there, but part resource. And they have to have enough wood or the right type of wood and et cetera. But also, it's forbidden to sell weapons to the free folk. It's a law in the Seven Kingdoms that you can't sell them weapons. So presumably, you also can't teach them how to do it. So... Part of this is an unfair thing because there's been attempts by the South to prevent them from getting this. It's not just they lack the skills. Like, y'all have stopped them <laughs> from doing this. It's it's a policy as much as it is anything. When I mention other raiding cultures, you have things like the Dothraki, the Ironborn, just pirates. Slave raids still happen in current times. A lot of this stuff is real-world accurate or at least similar or familiar. Nina mentions that it was prohibited to sell weapons to the Native Americans from like white folk in certain eras. I don't know. I don't know a lot about those laws, but I believe it. I totally believe that a group of people that a lot of early settlers wanted to kill would not want to arm them with the best weapons. That's just common sense. Yes, it's a lot of prejudice involved, but it's still a pretty simple conclusion. It was something that the British and French governments would like use the natives as pawns. Yeah. You know, like, we'll give you rifles if you go attack our enemies. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And and that worked out pretty well because, of course, they wanted the weapons. Like, they're like, yeah, yeah we don't really want to get involved with you, British people, but the enemy of our enemies, you know, is our friend, et cetera, yeah. which is how the British saw it. Then you're an enemy of our enemy. So, yeah, they're kind of like, well, we'll work with the ones that are killing us less. Yeah, Davos worked for smuggled for a guy that was executed for giving weapons to the wildlings, for example. We've seen it, not firsthand, but in his memories. And it's not terribly different in, in attitude. The concept of a raiding culture isn't super different from the conquest economies that we saw large-scale versions of and discussed. Like, the Romans had to keep conquering and bringing in looted wealth to keep their system going. They had to keep taking new slaves. It's a little bit like this, but on a much smaller scale. It's not industrialized. You don't have huge massive armies of wildlings coming in, taking huge amounts all at once. It's, it's smaller groups, but it's similar conceptually in that they need it. The Romans don't actually need it, we could say. They needed it to keep that system going. They didn't need to have that system, but given that they had that system wanted to keep it going, they had to keep doing these awful things. It's similar here, as I'm saying, but again, the scale is, is a fair point with it. It's something to point to that's a lot different, as well as the incentive, right? Some of it's power imbalance, some of it's desperation, some of it's just greed. But with the free folk, there's not that much room for greed. They're already mostly living in relative poverty. So it's like how much, how much greed can you assign to people that are not wealthy? Uh, but the seven kingdoms are far wealthier. And when the winters do get nasty in a place that already has a lot more of a killer be killed attitude, 
you can see that the strong survive and pick on the weak when things are really desperate. But that said, it's not as savage or as brutal as we're led to believe, right? Despite all this lawlessness, there's still a lot of humanity. There's still a lot of positive portrayals. There's less art, perhaps, but there's lots of music and song and story and lots of laughter, like lots of characters that are clearly good people. We're not meant to think of them as a monolith, right? Like, Sean, that's not the impression you get. You get a mixed a mixed impression, right, from the different characters. It's like any other group of people, right? Yeah, and I feel like in general, George doesn't focus on the art of the world. And yeah, so it is likely, I think, that the wildlings do have art or the free folk uh, do have art, especially because a lot of art, especially like what maybe we think of as art now, what we've, the art we find in ancient cultures, a lot of time is in their daily stuff. Their, their, their cups, their, their belts, their helmets often are There's always some artistic. style, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, good take there, Sean. And, and, and as we said earlier, there's just less like outright war. Sure, there's probably more like feuding. There might be more like, this guy hates that guy. You never know if they're going to start a fight with each other. But fewer cases of 500 guys fighting 500 guys or even larger. And, that, and those are the ones that are really devastating. It's almost, can you live with a bunch of people fighting in the streets if it means there's no chance of civil war? Yeah, I might take that trade. I might take that trade. We obviously don't actually have that choice. But, <laughs> but like you can see, and you can also see why some people would just prefer to live in the system that they're used to and be like, no, I, don't, I wouldn't want to adjust to that. I like the comfort of what I'm used to. And that's coming to a head when, in a situation like this when the cultures are, are, are refugees and they're forced to go south and they're forced to live amongst other cultures, whereas before they could live in isolation. And sure, there's a common thread to help unite them. But it's not like the bad blood and cultural differences are entirely forgotten. And again, when the others are beaten, presumably, then the grudges maybe come back afterwards. So that's a big deal. All these different things that are weighing on each other, so many different factors pushing back and forth. Yeah, it's hard to, hard to get it all central. There's just so much going on. And when we talk about hatred, a lot of it's one-sided. Because yeah, we have, we have free folk clans that, that fight with each other, the antler men and the tusk men, for example, or the ice river clans or don't like the, some of the cave dwellers or what have you. But the free folk don't hate the umbers. Umbers hate the free folk because they're on the cusp of where a lot of the raiding happens. They're the farthest north of any houses. But I don't think they're like, ah, oh, those stupid umbers. They just, they're just, just a place that they go raid. If you steal from the same farmer all the time, the farmer hates the people that steal from him, but the, the farmer doesn't have an identity to the people who are stealing from him, right? They're, they just, he's just the target. <laughs> it's the same thing here. There's, there's the bad blood goes one way, right? The free folk are like, yeah, we raid. We got to do what we got to do. We don't hate the Umbers. That's not why we raid them. I mean, they hate a lot of Southerners, but it's not specific Umber hate, right? Damn Umbers. The Starks, they don't make a lot of distinction between individual Southern houses is my point. Whereas the White Harbor people don't really care about free folk. They're not bothered by them. They're too far South for them to be a problem. Like how they don't care about Ironborn because they're on the other coast. They're on the other side of the continent. The Ironborn aren't a problem for them. But Umbers are constantly dealing with raiders. (laughs) So they have a hatred for that. So it's, it's interesting to think about that one-sided way. And they do hate the Night's Watch. They do hate the Rangers because they're the ones who come out there and attack them and are aggressively invading their territory. Whereas the Umbers don't ever go on the other side of the wall, right? They never invade their home. So it's interesting, these 
you think more umbers would join the Night's Watch. Go, uh... <laughs> Not a bad point. Not a bad point. <laughs> you, I can also imagine some wildlings might come to hate the umbers because they killed my brother in the last raid. Or, but that true. still wouldn't be the reason they're raiding the umbers. Right. The reason is still for resources, not because they hate them, even if they maybe also do hate them. Yeah. And the uh, White Harbor might not particularly uh, care about the free folk. But they probably still have a disdain for them yes, in general. Yes, that I would agree uh, with for sure. But to be fair, the free folk probably have a disdain. They probably don't even know who White Harbor is, yeah. but they have a general disdain for Southerners. Yeah, kneelers. Know? Yeah, just all that. You're right. The same cultural yeah. prejudices would apply. And if they saw a Manderley, like current Wyman Manderley, just with his hugely overweight, and it's like they would be like, what the heck? This that, is you, you follow this guy? Yeah. They, they might think he's a god or something. Yeah. That might be like a... <laughs> like Buddha. You're like, what the heck? It's like, how can this guy he must be special if you just let him sit around like that, eating all the time? Like <laughs> so yeah. It turns out he is special. Is he's really must be really smart. He's he's pretty smart. <laughs> but yeah, that would blow their minds. Like, how does this how does this man exist? <laughs> The point being, like, rarely does the realm take an active role in attacking beyond the wall. It's a defensive position. They're like, anything, we keep you out, but we don't usually go that far out, except for the rangers. They're the one exception. And another exception would be Mormont taking, like, most of the watch beyond the wall. That was unusual, right? That was, that's not something that happens, like, once a generation. No, that was very unusual. It also didn't go very well. Maybe that's part of why it was unusual. But Maybe there's been cases like we alluded to with Mongol leaders and other things. Maybe there's times when the Rangers were tasked with assassinating a certain King Beyond the Wall figure to make sure it didn't get big. That would be an interesting story to consider, like a side tale. Theon Stark, the Hungry Wolf, was an exception to this rule. He apparently led an army beyond the wall, pillaged and destroyed and set the free folk back a generation or two. So there's always an exception, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's who they see as an enemy. Of course, now things have changed because the others are back. But for millennia, the Night's Watch is the real enemy of the free folk. That's their number one foe, other than maybe some of their neighbors. <laughs> but like they're, they're united one thing. There's a, the, the thing that's an enemy to all of them. That's the closest thing to a, to a single enemy they have. Interesting to think about like from a perspective thing. Yeah, Seven Kingdoms, there's... Oh, there's so many dangers, so many enemies, but if you're standing on the north side of the wall, really it's just this until the, until the others have come back. Or maybe winter, <laughs> the danger of nature. So here's another quote. It is the wildlings beyond the wall who are the danger the Night's Watch now face. Yet only when there are kings beyond the wall have the wildlings ever truly presented a threat to the realms of men. Yeah, so it's like most of the seven kingdoms just can forget they even exist, even when there's a king beyond the wall, because I've never heard of a king beyond the wall getting farther than a little bit farther south of the wall. Like they've never, they haven't penetrated as far south as White Harbor, or I don't think they've gotten past Winterfell. So yeah, so they don't hate Northerners per se, but they do hate the Watch. And this goes back to what I was saying before, how is a lot of the Watch aren't Northerners. They're Southerners. They're farther Southerners. Criminals that were sent to the wall as a punishment. <laughs> this is some of the worst people from the South that the free folk in, end up interacting with. It's like their version of Southerners is a mishmash of violent people. Some of them are okay. Some of them are decent. But a lot of them are just ex-criminals who have no cultural understanding of, of free folk at all prior to arriving at the wall. And that 
a lot of times that's where a lot of prejudice and just, if not outright, like racism, whatever version of that comes in, in Westeros just would come out. And, and again, we come back to Crasher. Look what happens when the strong men aren't keeping the awful ones in line. You see, Crasher's keep is what happens. And mass murder and awful things, right? So those are the people that we're interacting with. I guess I'm going to drive this point home a second time. It's a really big deal. Of course they hate the watch. So many rangers are total (laughs) terrible people. But again, there's trade with the children, with the wildlings. Like some of them are good people. Some of them work out deals. Uh, But sometimes it only takes one asshole to ruin the whole thing though, right? That's the sad state of affairs. That's the sad aspect of humanity, isn't it? Sometimes one person can ruin it all for Aspects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one craft. Hey, even if everyone on even if everyone on the wall was, I don't know, educated, noble, honorable, whatever, there would still just the nature of their role is still antagonistic to the wildlings. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's true. So Earlier, we mentioned the point about people always seeing themselves as the good guys. Here's an example of that. Here's a grit responding to John. They're having a little bit of an argument. And here's what she says. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Daughters are taken, not wives. You're the ones who steal. You took the whole world and built the wall to keep the free folk out. This is one of those two wrongs make a right <laughs> arguments. No, you're both. You can both be wrong, a grit. It may have been wrong to keep the free folk out, but it's it's also wrong to steal women and daughters are taking out wives. That's not true. Come on. Sometimes, like, maybe this is what they're supposed to do, but sure, yeah, come on. <laughs> Even if it was true, it's not like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. Yes, <laughs> oh, only daughters are taken. Sure. That's, uh, once someone's married, they're the property of that man. So, yeah, oh, that's oh, all. Yeah, all right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like they're wearing rings. They don't know. Like, you, and when you steal a woman, yeah, if you don't know her, yeah, you would not know she was married. <laughs> like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to steal you. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. I won't kidnap you. I'll go take you back now. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. You know, I want to bring up real quick. I, I watched all the short films nominated for this year's uh, Oscar Awards. Okay. And one of them is about that. It's uh, oh. I think it was called Take and Run, I think was the name of it. Without spoiling too much, I mean, that's what it's about. It's just a, a woman who basically gets kidnapped and forced into a marriage. And the, at one point, the, the man is trying to justify himself to her. And he's like, what am I supposed to do? This is my culture. It's expected of me. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, if you didn't do that, someone might kidnap you and take you away from your home. What do you mean what are you supposed to do? Be a good person is what you're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. Like, ask, <sighs> ask them out on a date. <laughs> That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> normal courtship. I don't know. Maybe it's not normal to you, you but it, it, it does work. Whatever you think would happen to you if you didn't do this is not as bad as what you did to this. Is it really your only way to find a relationship? <laughs> are you serious? <laughs> I mean, we see this as slavery or at least close culture? to it. What was the culture that it was about, Sean? That short film, do you know? Oh, I think it was like in some remote area of China, oh, maybe okay. Mongolia. It was oh. definitely an Asian area. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, Nina says it's basically equivalent to, if less somewhat formalized, than the practice of taking salt wives. You're, you're forcibly taken and you can't leave subjected to have sex with this person whenever they want. I mean, yeah, it's pretty... What's the difference fundamentally from... From that, from salt wife or forced slavery, forced sex slave or whatever. Yeah, it's just... But again, she does have a point. She's wrong about that. It's her justifications that is is wrong, not not her criticism of what Southerners did and keeping free folk out and treating free folk like second-class humans. That part she's right about. Yeah, that, you know, why can't 
free folk and seven kingdoms people have trade relations and why can't, yeah, why, what's wrong with that? So that's where she's got a point. You trapped us on the other side with the others. You denied us a lot of the best resources. You kept us from the fertile land. And this is like you said, Sean, like how far back do we go? I, I don't know if you can blame Jon Snow for this. <laughs> yeah, Jon <John laughs> Like 8,000 yeah. years ago, but how far back can you go? But and, you, and even if you can't blame Jon for it, you can still acknowledge that this was a crime or an injustice that was committed 8,000 years ago, and it still has an impact now. Maybe wrong to blame John, but it's not wrong to say it's unfair that that happened and maybe something should be done about it, right? The burden maybe isn't on John, but the burden maybe does exist. If, if that distinction makes and sense, to borrow a phrase from you, Sean, John, does that make sense? Like, <laughs> if maybe this isn't John's fault in the first place, but is he perpetuating it now? It's extra complicated. Like maybe if everyone were just good people, like if, if everyone in the Night's Watch should be like, wait, we shouldn't be keeping these people out. But the problem is that these people are also attacking the lands on the other side. And we do need to defend those lands. Maybe we'll let them in. But when they come in, what if they do bad things? Maybe it's easier to just keep them out in the first place. On top of all that, which is complicated, however it might get justified, justified there's this other factor of the others, which <laughs> on one hand, no one really believed in for many generations. So maybe it's not justifiable in recent times. Maybe you can justify the original building of the wall because of that. But it does happen to know, and John knows, and current members of the Watch do know that it is a real threat that's out there, and that's why the wildlings are even coming south now. And it's part of what makes John the hero, or a hero, of this story, because he does realize... He changes his ways. We are all people. I am obliged to help these people who might be of a different culture or location, but we have the same obligations to the film The Realm of Men. And that they're part of it. Yeah. You know, should be the realm of men and women or humans or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That whole argument about where you trapped us on this side of the wall with bad guys is a, an interesting argument. I mean, Nina says, and I agree, one evil doesn't justify the other. Sure, you trapped us over here. That doesn't justify stealing women. The women on the South side didn't. Why are they suffering the brunt of this? It's not their fault. Right. It, yeah. They aren't the ones that put you on the side of the wall. Right. It, it's, it's definitely a two wrongs make a right argument to me. I think it's pretty straightforward to, to classify it that way. There's there's other things you could say about it, but I think it's the flaw in the argument is very clear. <laughs> it might be fair to tax the women and all the umbers and use those tax resources to help support the wildlings. Yeah, right? like a that form might be fair. of reparations or sort of something like that. Yeah, yeah. Like something along, maybe that's not the right phrase. And that but might be like difficult that. or controversial, yeah. but it's definitely better than randomly kidnapping them. <laughs> yeah, it's better than the current state of affairs. That's for sure. Yeah, like I yeah. think that would be an improvement. It's tough though, you're right, because it's a really, these, these kind of systems, when something's been in place for so long, when so many people don't even see it as a problem, like most people in the South aren't aware this is an issue. They don't know Again, like we talked, does Cersei ever say the word wildling, for example? Like, goes to show that how little they think about it. And to be fair, even if Cersei was a great queen, it wouldn't be high on her list of, of problems. There are big problems within the realm that arguably she should be more focused on. There's so many other issues that need taken care of. It's not like that one is just number one. It's a big problem, but there's plenty of other people suffering and plenty of other problems, plenty of other things she could fix that would save a lot of people's lives or help a lot of people's lives or whatever. It makes sense to pay more attention to provide more resources for your neighbors yeah. than foreigners. Doesn't mean you shouldn't help foreigners, but it's it's not only is it more in your 
your your mind's eye or your actual eye, what's happening to your neighbors. It's also more physically convenient to help yeah. someone who's right next to you than someone who's far away. And it's logistically uh, possible. Yeah, it's easier yeah. to handle. When you get to a certain level of wealth and logistical capability, then maybe you should extend farther out. But yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and that and that gets back into the whole like nation versus not nation, whereas a, a nation has the ability, it sometimes can use its great powers to do evil, but it has the ability to solve problems like this, to, to organize its great communal might to help where help is needed, right? To, to, some people say, hey, I don't, why do I want to have my tax revenue go to someone helping up there? Well, because we live in a society and don't want people to die. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I don't yeah. like having to yeah. make that argument because <laughs> it seems so basic. <laughs> Not because I don't agree with it, because it's, come on, do I, do I really have to Get you to agree that letting people die is not acceptable. Yeah, it happens. But anyway, let's move on to legends and stories. One of our final uh, subtopics for the day. We have a quote. Sean, lead us off. The brothers Gindel and Gorn were joint kings 3,000 years ago. Leading their hosts down beneath the earth into a labyrinth of twisting subterranean caverns, they passed beneath the wall unseen to attack the north. Gorn slew the Stark king in battle then was killed in turn by the king's heir, and Gindel and his remaining wildlings fled back to their caverns, never to be seen again, only to become gods that are worshipped. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good opportunity to show two sides of a story, right? Grit says, has a different version of that, because this has never seemed to be seen again. And Grit says they wandered the tunnels and got lost, and you can still hear them and all that. So there's just, Gendel and Gorin legend exists on both sides of the wall. And it's pretty similar on both sides of the wall, but there are important distinctions between the two versions. One is a little more friendly to them and the other is a little more, well, we don't know. Dismissive, maybe? Yeah, more and more dismissive. It's, I have so many questions, though. Is that tunnel still there? Like, I doubt it just vanished. Like, one thing George uses the Free Folk for, and we'll get into this a little more at the final section, which is the influence on A Song of Ice and Fire, is George has, through the long history of the Free Folk, we've seen a variety of ways in which they've evaded the wall, which tickles our mind to the possibilities from how, like, a great evasion of the wall could be done, or a great bringing it down, or it just gives us a lot of possibilities for how it could eventually be circumvented. And that's a fun thing to be building up, because we know <laughs> something's going to happen. And who was this Stark King? And who was his heir? I'm curious about that. What heir? Like, you asked about this, Sean, it says 3,000 years ago. I don't know that that's a certainty that 3,000 years ago, is that an estimate? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. But he's not the, those were, and the idea they were joint kings is fascinating too. Like, you don't hear a lot of that. That's some, that's not even like how the Spartans, the Spartans had two different royal families that each put a, a person on the throne, two kings, but these are brothers. This is totally different. These were two kings beyond the wall that just seized the, the throne beyond the wall, for lack of a better term, or the crown beyond the wall and shared it. Now, here is uh, a follow-up quote. The threat posed to the realm by these savage peoples can be safely discounted, save for the times once in a great while when they united beneath the leadership of a king beyond the wall. Though many wildling raiders and war chiefs have aspired to this title, few have ever achieved it. None of the wildlings who have risen up to become king beyond the wall have done aught to build a true kingdom or care for their people. In truth, such men are warlords, not monarchs. And though elsewise much different one from the other, each has led his peoples against the wall in hopes of breaching it and conquering the seven kingdoms to the south. 
Now, that's not necessarily 100% accurate there. For one thing, uh, such men are warlords, not monarchs. Uh, they all want to conquer all of the Seven Kingdoms? Uh, really? I don't think Gendel and Gorn were like, to Dorn, all the way <laughs> south. Like, what? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, they might not even known what Dorn was. Yeah, they might have liked it because it rhymed. It was like, Gorn of Dorn. I could be Gorn of Dorn. <laughs> <laughs> but... Other than that, I mean, yeah, what's there? It's like, why would they want to even, like, why would they even conceive of that as a possibility, right? Like, this seems like there's some exaggeration here. It's certainly not what Mance is doing. Mance is like, I'm leading my people because we're going to die to the the free, to the others. <laughs> so it's definitely not true in that case. Gendel and Gorn, we don't know what they're, what they were after. No free folk king beyond the walls ever, as I said, gotten farther than Winterfell as far as we know. I don't know that we have a real idea of what they were after. I mean, yes, they wanted, they probably intended to stay. They probably were like, we want to live here now too. We want to, we're going to carve out our own area. We're going to overthrow the Starks and take this over. But I, I severely doubt they intended to go through the neck and into the riverlands. Like that just doesn't sound very feasible or likely or, yeah. I've got a couple thoughts too in Aziz. One is that Mance, unlike the others, would have had a pretty good knowledge of what the land south of the wall was like. True. He might have even been, probably was even part of his master plan. He probably knew we can settle in the gift. He had probably had no intentions of attacking or taking over or going down to Dorne or anything. He just knew we just need to get south of the wall, we can settle the gift. No one in King's Landing will know or care that it even happened. There's lots of know. space in the north. Yeah, that could have been negotiated. Yeah, yeah something yeah. like that. And I, I say the gift, but yeah, there's a whole north is just open land. That yeah. The gift maybe is a, is isn't a very cromulent suggestion. <laughs> yeah. So, it, but, and that, that was also springing from the idea that the other wildling leaders unlikely even knew what's, it, what's the chances they even have seen a map of the south of the Almost wall zero. or of the north yeah, even. Probably zero. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, even if they had some idea that they were going to conquer the whole thing, they just didn't conceive of what that actually meant. Yeah. And it probably couldn't even happen in a lifetime. Yeah. And like, like a grit has never had never seen a tower house. She's like, Oh, a castle. And John's like, nah, I was like, yeah, it just goes to show how little they, a lot of them know. Now, man, you, they you're are right. That Mance would be an exception. They know to nothing. They know nothing. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. some of them have raided several, like a lot of the leaders would have seen castles. They would have seen the castles on the wall at least and been like, yeah, no, I've seen that. Mm -hmm. You know, like some of the fens far up there have never even heard of such a thing. But a lot of them, yeah, a lot of them have raided. They have experience. They've seen at least some of it. But they couldn't possibly understand the idea of how much farther south it goes and what it would take to hold Or like a King's Landing. Won some battles. Yeah, they've seen castles, yeah. but the yeah. city of half city? a million people or whatever, yeah. that would be like, like, what the hell is this? Yeah. <laughs> that would be like truly mind-blowing. Yeah, so if they had this crazy idea to conquer the South, it's because they don't know what they're saying. It's because they don't know how big it is and, and what it is. You know? You know, <laughs> I wonder how similar that might have been to the Huns or the, the Vandals getting to Rome. Whoa, we had no idea what was out in the world. Now, now that they're here, yeah, maybe. They, there was nothing stopping to have some intention of holding Rome. Yeah. They, you know. There'd be nothing stopping like Attila from just like riding into Rome. Like he could have just ridden his horse to Rome and gone in and hung out and seen it. Whereas maybe an individual, yeah, there's some individual free folk that could sneak into the South and then like Mance did that, but he's, he knew his way around a bit already. It'd be hard to go all the way down to King's Landing and back. And and then even if you did, to, would you even have the language to communicate what you had seen? Would people believe you? Is yeah. just, yeah. Like the gods must be crazy. <laughs> 
the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a really good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> Great movie. So the other thing, a little bit different, but something I was thinking earlier when we we're talking about the sort of biases that Yandel is having here. It occurs to me that he might not be quite as biased as, as we're painting him to be. He has an audience too, right? He's going to paint this picture for the king that he's appealing to. And so he might understand on some level that the king would want, making the wildlings seem more savage makes the king seem more noble. Does that make mm, sense? On some level, yeah. he's making an appeal in his presentation a good point. To, the, to his audience. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good idea. Just a good thought that what Andel says isn't always what he believes. Yeah, he's he knows his audience. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah Andel, it, it isn't necessarily what he thinks himself. You're right. It's some of its presentation. Always need to keep that in mind with pretty much any presentation. <laughs> now, and I also want to know if it's, is it even possible to build a functional kingdom beyond the wall? Like the, he throws shade at the ideas. They like, they're not trying to build a kingdom and care for the people. Well, they don't want to. He thinks that this is what they should be doing. He thinks that this would be the right direction for them to take because it's what he thinks is the best option. Now we have... Or he wants the king to think that way. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Also true. Right? Very good. Very good. Yeah, you're right. You're you're a great king. You're trying to do good things for your people, not like these other savages north of the wall. Yeah, he can't exactly throw shade on the concept of monarchy when he's right presenting this book to a king. He's <laughs> like yeah. giving this to Robert <laughs> slash Joffrey slash Tom. Yeah, By the way, I, I don't think monarchy is such a good idea. <laughs> page 15. Go ahead. Take a look. Joraman was apparently the first king beyond the wall. Clearly, people still believe in that legend, a lot, and a lot of legends are taken seriously. That's why I've merged this idea of kings beyond the wall with some of the legends and stories, because they've amalgamated into one thing in a lot of cases. A lot of them are legendary, but they may have been real. The Horned Lord is, is another one. Maybe a apparently a thousand years after Jorman, which is most certainly just some pretty vague estimate. He apparently used some sort of magic to get around the wall. It's just magic. It's really unspecific. But that is interesting. Again, it's tickling our minds with the possible ways in which people can get around the wall. It's just showing us things that we can theorize on. It's giving us examples. We, we can't settle on one idea. Is it tunnels? Is it sorcery? Is it this? I wonder if George has even decided if, if he's <laughs> letting these ideas seep out and see where they go. Which one's going to be, yeah, which one's he going to do? There was King Edric Snowbeard, who apparently ruled, was a weak ruler late in life. He, he ruled really long. like He was ruled into senility, apparently. And it says in the quote about him, it says that there were even free folk were trying to cut off some of his territory. Slavers from the East, Boltons, all these different people, even, even free folk, even wildlings. Like, really? Wildlings were trying to cut a piece of the Stark realm in, in that era, huh? So that's interesting. So I wondered, is, again, it's, it's, it's a possible insight into what they were trying to achieve by invading other than just, we want to live here now. And clearly not like Mance, where they're trying to escape the others and live here now. Now, one of the best examples, Bale the Bard. Remember when Igrit tells the story to John, he's like, I've never heard this story. What the hell are you talking about? So that's really interesting that she's like, oh, yeah, we talk about it a lot up there. It's a famous story beyond the wall. And Eandel mentions it. It's in the world of ice and fire, but he refers to the possibility that it's made up. It's a really good quote here. Let's have it. And it also lines up. That John might not know this story. Why? Yeah, right? why he would? Yeah. yeah, it fills in. It's it's really cleverly written here. Yeah, the wildlings say he did, and credit many songs to his name. But the old chronicles of Winterfell say nothing of him. Whether this was due to the defeats and humiliations he was said to have visited upon him, 
including, according to one improbable story, deflowering a Stark maid and getting her with child, or because he never existed, we cannot truly say. This is a perfect segue from talking about what Yandel would present to the king, because yeah, this would be embarrassing. This would, if it happened, you can see why they would sweep it under the rug. A, A wildling is in the ancestry of the Starks, that is a big deal because you know how they seriously, they take their bloodlines and all that. That would be really, you can see why some people would think that like we look at them like so. Like in modern times, like what does it matter what his ancestry was? But they would take that as, oh my gosh, a free, a wildling in the bloodline of the Starks. Oh, it's a shameful thing. And you can so that you can see why they would not, not write about that. You, you can, not only can you see why Winterfell and the North in general maybe wouldn't perpetuate this story, but why, but why others would. Yeah, like, they might like the idea of downplaying don't the you, Starks. You, you can't know? sleep that under the rug. <laughs> yeah. We know about Bale the Bard. The Citadel would keep that, <laughs> that story in the records. <laughs> yeah, so, and here's one, but you can also even see if we're really putting ourselves in Yandel's po- point of view. He knows that originally this book was written for Robert. Robert's best friend's Ned. Eh? He wouldn't want to. He's like, yeah, we can't say. So the fact that he even includes the story at all is maybe uh, he was already taking a little risk. After it was for Joffrey. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Because Joffrey had Stark's head chopped off. He he does. He does call it improbable. He says, according to one improbable story, like it's got enough potential to be worth mention, but. I want to give Jack Gleason credit for playing the role of Joffrey because a lot of times I imagine him, like I imagine Joffrey reading this bit of the book. I could just see Jack Gleason playing out his reaction. He's like, oh, the Starks are all descended from, well, I'm not marrying Sansa. (laughs) (laughs) She's got wildling blood. Of course, kid, you might want to look into your own ancestry before. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) he would start calling Ned, that wildling northerner. Yeah. <laughs> it would just be his new nickname just to irk Sansa every time. <laughs> so the most recent, not counting Mance, that we know of was Raymond Redbeard. He was killed in 226. So that's only about 74 years, 75 years ago. Kind of like the Gendel and Gorn story where the Lord was killed, the Stark was killed and then was avenged by a close kin. In this case, it wasn't his son, but his brother. Willem Stark was killed by Raymond Redbeard and Artos the Implacable, his brother, killed Raymond Redbeard and led the battle from there and won and drove them back beyond the wall. So Willem is the father of Edwile and Will Edwile was the father of Rickard and of course Rickard was Ned's father. So that's not that far back in the, uh, the genealogy there. And we look, we see these common constant things when we get the Stannis and his wife, Solis, on the wall. They just, push their culture like relentlessly and it's not like you're going to do it our way Salisa's way is your way doesn't exist this is the way that is there is no she doesn't even acknowledge that they have a way <laughs> she's this is the only way this descendant of Raymond Redbeer is clearly the person that should be king beyond the wall like, what they don't do things like that they're trying to force that and they don't they're not making a plea they're not like explaining it they're like no this guy is your king now because of course he is, because this is the law, right? He's the bloodline, like, of course it is. And there's no attempt to reach an accommodation. There's no attempt to bridge that cultural divide. They're just like, this is how it is now. I'm Stannis's queen. I make this call. I will brook no argument. Yeah, that's not going to go well, Solis. <laughs> like Val like, laughs at her, and Sir Patrick tries to steal her, and one one kills him, and it's pretty hilarious because it's the opposite of 
the knight trying to save the princess from the giant. The giant saves the princess from the knight. I love that. <laughs> I've mentioned that so many times. I just I can't, can't get enough of that. <laughs> George is one of his better inversions. So yeah, so he gives all these different examples. You wonder, oh, throughout the ages, have there been other cases like this? Not of necessarily kings going on the wall and telling wildlings how to live, because the times right now are, are unusual. This is, a, this is an exception to most of history. But yeah. Uh, I really wonder about that and, and how this is going to play out because you can't just force people. Like these are people who are, they live the way they do because they won't be forced. So <laughs> it's, yeah. Here's another take from Nina. In regards to why some of the other kings beyond the wall would have invaded without the others as a threat. She says, could it be a sense of legend with no formal written histories. The way free folk heroes get remembered is in cultural tradition, songs and stories. Jarl even motivated the raiding party. John joined by telling McMahon's promised your name in the song he'll make of this. So yeah, it's just like glory and just being a standout amongst your own people. And there's always social standing. That's, that has a lot of value to people. And when you don't have wealth or much else, then social standing has even more value when there's no money yeah. in, the, in the picture. But the resources, why were the Vikings venturing out? Yeah. Get yourself a steel sword. Get yourself, a, yeah, get yourself some better quality stuff, better stuff to live by. Now, especially if you can imagine maybe like population swelling and the demand for food being greater, that you have both more people to go wage war, yeah. more demand for war because you need people need food and you can go to the South to get it. Maybe even something as simple as like a plow, just metal for plows yeah, might have basic been a, stuff, yeah. a, a driving force. Now, I mentioned that they don't necessarily have a lot of direct prejudices against certain houses in the South, but they certainly know some things about it. For example, they recognize John as a Stark. Like, people were like, he looks like a Stark. They know this is a Stark look, clearly, and John has it, and they've seen it before, and a lot of them are familiar with it. To be fair, plenty of Starks on the wall. Benjamin recently, was First Ranger. A lot of them would have known him. And the Starks are when we all hear these stories about the Kings Beyond the Wall invading, it's pretty much always a Stark joining with the Lord's Commander, the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch to fight them back. Right? There's almost always a Stark involved or multiple Starks. And at the same time, we come back to this various sort of summary of what these legends do. Most legends beyond the wall, they're legendary for what they're able to do to people south of the wall their leadership and uniting people and taking them south. Even though it's been all failure, like the Ironborn, for, in terms of some of their best leaders are some of the ones that have brought them the most grief. They still, still have a lot of claim for these leaders. And there's also this combination of ideas, like we said, tunnels, horns, trickery. One thing I didn't mention is just poor leadership. Sometimes the, the kings beyond the wall get to the south because of the watches doing a bad job. Like in the case of Raymond Redbeard, it was... Sleepy Jack was the nickname given to the Lord Commander. And he got that name because the wall, the watch, they got past him without him noticing because <laughs> he was not very cognizant of what they were doing. How far back was that, by the way? So that's 75 years, not long. That's that one that was pretty recent. Which I partly bring up because it would be more in the time period where the wall isn't manned yeah. with as high a quantity or quality of troops. Very true. And right now, it's not necessarily poor leadership. In fact, I'd say it's very good leadership in the face of in, in the case of John. But John's leadership is is not being accepted clearly by the people that just killed him. Mm -hmm. And we know there's more wildlings still to the north that haven't accepted the deal, like some of the worst ones. And now that chaos is broken out at the wall with John being stabbed, they may this may be their chance. Okay, the watch is distracted. The Lord Commander isn't just 
sleeping. He's freaking dead. <laughs> <laughs> what better time than to, to try to break in than when they're so, in Dutch disarray? A little tangent here. Sure. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but Jorah Mormont, a good leader? Jorah or Gior? Like he's Gior. He had. He's generally it's presented as a protagonist. He's, I think of him as a good guy. Most people probably like him and think of him as a hero, but like, how successful has he been? I think as a he's leader? a good leader, but his decision to go beyond the wall was a big mistake. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think it's not a simple answer. I think overall he was a good leader because he treated people well. He treated, he knew, he, like, you can name a number of things that were very f- correctly forward thinking, like bringing John along as, in a leadership role, seeing that he, he needed people like him. Focusing on the true problem in the North rather than being distracted by the South. Got to give him some props for that. He wasn't slack. He may have made the wrong move, but he focused on the right problem. And yeah. yeah, Like sometimes, no matter how good leader you are, the situation is just so dire. And or you have such limited information, like it's hard hard for him to make the right decision there. Yeah, I agree. And And that's part, and to be fair, that's part of what he was trying to do. He was like, we don't have enough information. We need to go beyond the wall to find this out. That was the part of what he was doing was trying to figure out what was happening. Part of why I bring this up, though, is because we can get to the core of this. But what do you think? A couple generations from now, 75 years from now, how is he going to be remembered? Ooh. Right? Like, I wonder if this, this Lord Commander yeah. who was asleep at the wall. Maybe he was doing his darndest, but was just in an impossible position. You know, I could see him being remembered badly, but I, I wonder, especially if John is also remembered badly. If John is yeah. remembered heroically, then then Gior may get some credit for being the guy that no, kind of nominated him as a successor. You might get you might get some credit, but if John is remembered badly, then it could the opposite could happen. Then that reflects on Gior for putting this guy yeah. in charge. Yeah, so yeah. that's a tough one. That's a real tough one. I, I could see it going either way. I hope he's remembered well. Because I think overall, yeah. he did more good over, like by far. And, and we know that he's a decent guy. Like just seeing his interactions with yeah. people, like he was mostly. So yeah, but yeah, history may not be kind to him. I don't know. All right, let's talk. Uh, let's move on to the final section. A little bit on the overall as a whole, the role of free folk and wildlings in Song of Ice and Fire. Obviously, individual characters, it's different. Uh, individual tribes, it's different. But we're trying to take a very high level view here because if we were to drill down bigger levels or smaller levels of detail. Well, we're talking about like a whole episode's worth of time here. We're trying to wrap it up. (laughs) So (laughs) just real quick for fun, 39 times Wildling is mentioned in the world of Ice and Fire. 39 times throughout. And like I said at the beginning, it's it's very scattered throughout because they come up in a lot of different places. A lot of times Wildling versions of stories are inserted or just uh, legends here and there on a certain topic. But you can really tell where it's prominent within the book series, within the five main novels, based on the frequency of mentions. 19 times in A Game of Thrones. 17 times in A Feast for Crows. 17 times Feast for Crows is very little of the North, only a little bit of Sam. 74 times in The Clash for Kings. 202 times in A Storm of Swords. 186 times in A Dance with Dragons. So huge numbers in building up in A Clash of Kings and really big in, in Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons when there's lots of John chapters at the wall. <laughs> so yeah, so that that's maybe something you've already realized, but you may not have realized just how distinct that difference is. That's a huge difference. That's more than 10 times more mentions. Yeah, that's a magnitude of difference, at least. Meanwhile, the phrase free folk only appears three times in all of the world of ice and fire. And it's hard to find how many times it appears in all of the books because there's times where it's meant in exactly like they're a free folk, but it's not referring to the free folk right? That term comes up. So, but it's in the hundreds. It's in the 150-ish. So it's still a lot, but it's mostly only 
free folk referring to themselves that way. Almost everyone in the South, even people who respect them like John, still tends to call them wildly. I noticed that John does go back and forth, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It's something I've noticed. So one question people wanted to know about as well is their role as like a microcosm is like a historical throwback. Like they are not stuck in this state, but the technology doesn't progress at the same rate, in part because of government, but more probably because of resources. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a way for George to show these old cultures, to show older versions of the pre-versions of the first men, and to show like a, a nature, a society versus nature divide. The wall is like that capstone, that difference. Magic didn't die beyond the wall like it did south of it in a lot of ways. Partly because there was an effort to extinguish those elements south of the wall, but also because those elements from the wall were forced there and maybe preferred it. Skin changers, giants, children of the forest. Proximity to the home of the others. The land of, of always winter is up there somewhere. I mean, it's what Bran sees in his coma dream. So that's there, right? It's up there. And we don't know much about it, at least not yet. I think George is giving us this land before time, this, this land, this separate maybe the land of the lost to borrow a old TV show that maybe George himself watched where time is maybe moved indifferently, uh, maybe for back of a letter, lack of a better phrase, but there's also an appeal in these characters. It's this freedom, this independence has a lot of sway on a lot of people. A lot of people find that idea romantic or compelling like John, frankly, John fi- likes a lot of it. And of course, Mance Raider, he was, he, intentionally joined them. He was a member of the Night's Watch and, and left to be part of them. There's this guy, Maester Willis, who no relation to the uh, Different Strokes character. This is, this is Maester Willis, not uh, what you're talking about, Willis. <laughs> but, I, but it is a case of what you're talking about, Willis, because he went and lived at Hardhome for years, went back to the Citadel, wrote a book about it, and then was like, I want to go back. He apparently went back to live beyond the wall and was never seen again. So he was drawn to it. So there's definitely like a romanticism here that George, I think the way he writes it, he shows that it's not for everyone. Some people really, really want it. It's exactly what they, they want. You need to have this example of what it's like to live without a king, a view into another system. Just the idea that something else is possible is important to people like John. They're like, I never considered this. I never thought about it this way. And to John's credit, it really moves him. He doesn't just say, okay, some people live differently. That's fine, but I live this way. No, he's an open-minded guy and it moved him significantly and it's changed who he is. And it's also showing us a lot of other things, things that we've discussed throughout this episode that, yeah, there's always decent people. There's always terrible people. And even the decent people are flawed, like Ygritte or Torment. Like, I think most those are very popular characters, but no one's going to sit here and say that they're immune to criticism, that they haven't done bad things. So I appreciate George's portrayal of the wildlings. They're, they're very sympathetic, despite so many exceptions, but they're not over-romanticized. There's some romantic, that romantic element is there, but I don't think George leans into it too heavily. And as Stannis would say, the good doesn't erase the bad. So he's George is consistent with that theme of even when something is romanticized, he's never going to say it's immune to criticism or never say that there isn't some gray in there. Because there's Tormund, but there's Craster. There's Gilly. But then there's the Weeper. There's Leathers. And there's Steer. <laughs> you know, there's just, yeah, there's, you could say that about characters from any region. You could find these examples. Right, Sean? Yeah. Yeah. There's John, but there's Tywin. (laughs) (laughs) There's Sam, but there's Sam's dad. Every character from Dorne is great. (laughs) Even Darkstar. Exception to the exception. (laughs) Even Darkstar said, yeah, right. (laughs) Mm. 
And despite the vast differences between the free folk people, another important sort of lesson within all this is that even they, so far, seem to be able to come together when they must, which the people of the South may not be able to do, which may give us uh, maybe a feather in their cap and say, hey, look, the free folk with their lack of kneeling came together for a community issue. I mean, maybe I'm selling it short, calling it a community issue, the invasion of the others, but whatever. Maybe this, maybe this, we're showing that this is a, a flaw in the Southern system, that they are too busy fighting over power to come together when it really matters most. Heck, we've got, they're already being invaded from outside. The Golden Company is invaded and they're already like, ah, if it really is them, <laughs> you know, they're just mm-hmm. like, ah, we got our own problems. That's a huge problem, man. Yeah, uh, here's Nina's final take as well. I think this is good. The, she says, I think the main point of the free folk is to underline the core theme of the series. The others are an omnicidal threat that want to wipe out everything we call life. All humans, all animals, all giants, all children. Against that, everyone has to unite. There's no room to say some humans can live, but some can't. Stannis, for all his faults, gets it. When the cold winds rise, we shall live or die together. It is time we made alliance against our common foe. And that is, Nina's right to identify that as a really common theme. It's 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 big part of the Azor High legend that Ashe and I have been harping on for a while. Azor High, the core of the Azor High legend is not a warrior. It's a uniter. Azor High unites people to against the common thread. Common threat. Bran is doing that. John is doing that. Danny is doing that. Stannis is doing Stannis that. is doing that. You're right. Right here, Stannis is doing that. There's a... Take exception to Nina saying he has faults. <laughs> <laughs> she says he gets it, though. Yeah, he's got... He's focused on the final. Melisandre gets it, right? There are characters who get it that they've properly framed this threat against other concerns. They've say, okay, this is a problem. This is a problem. This is a problem. But this is the biggest problem. You know who else, by the way? Mance Tormund. Yeah, sure. You're right. Yeah, you're right. You're totally right. That's a great point. It's not just the ones that there's not just some except we got to I mean, this is an episode about them. So yeah, yeah, right to include them. Totally right. Okay, thanks for coming out today. Appreciate your joining us for this fun episode. I had a great time. I know we'll have more free folk topics to discuss in the future. There's always more. There's always more. We, I mentioned the Skagos episode briefly. So that's one you could check out. It's one of our shortest ones we've ever done. It's only about 30 minutes long, so not exactly the biggest time investment, but it's pretty fun. The Skags have a lot of cultural overlap with a lot of the things we've talked about today. And they also, like the free folk, have a role to come, one would think, with Davos going there especially. So our trivia question, remember the, uh, the question was... Which character was the first one to use the phrase free folk? This one was probably not as hard as a lot of the others, but not super easy. The answer is... Has anyone guessed it? Really? I don't think I saw anyone guess it. I I don't think I did. I saw a lot of yeses for Egret. And uh, The person who it is makes a lot of sense. There's a last minute clue. You want to sneak a guess in before his Easter reveals yeah, who, it. Yeah. When you hear it, you're like, oh, of course. It's everyone's yeah. last chance. The well, answer is Osha, right? That yeah, is like an, oh, yeah, of course it's Osha. Because, yeah, Osha's yeah. like one of the first <laughs> free folk they meet with Bran and, and, and Rob and, and out in the, in the woods with Theon, with Theon kills She would one. refer to herself that way. She was like a, a relatively early it came character in, to be presented. It came and, in Bran 6 when she's talking about how Rob's marching his army the wrong way. 
the real threats to the north. Yeah. So that's another one. Yeah. Who knows? And of course, that's part of why she's <laughs> fleeing. That's part of why they they found her in the first place. She was fleeing that threat. She without Mance, she's just like yeah, I'm going. Some people didn't want to follow Mance. They were just like, no, let's just get out of here on our own. And well, she might not be quite the uniter that Mance is or some of these other characters but she's not in position to do it yet right. maybe she'll be more so later we'll see. yeah we'll see obviously the people she was with ended up all dead but she ended up in a good place because now the, the starks have are indebted to her she really did come through when it mattered most she helped rickon yeah. and, and bran escape and if she survives she's got a reward coming from bran or somebody because <laughs> she deserves it she did some good things all right well Thank you to Nina for her notes and great takes. Thank you to anyone who supports us on Patreon, keeping all of this going. We would be like a car with no gas if, if it weren't for y'all. <laughs> I guess this is the last week I'll mention this, but one last push. If you personally know anyone who frequently uses filters, augmented reality lenses, send my survey to them bit.ly slash AR lens. I really need more frequent users at this point. Right on. Thanks. Please do that. Yeah, Shea could use your help there on her survey. It's important for her uh, school. Also, thanks to Joey, Jesse, and Kevin for our music. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for our maps and video intro. Thanks to the mods that run our discussion spots like Facebook and Discord. You can also reach out to us on other social media like Twitter or send us an email at historyofwesteros at gmail.com. Another thing I, I haven't mentioned is because we're jumping around more with the topics we've gotten, it's going to be, it's less clear where what the next topic should be based on the world of ice and fire. There's a lot of directions we could go. If you are a patron, be aware that we've been putting up, at least this last time, we're going to keep doing this, more polls, uh, more voting on which topic to do next. This topic was chosen by patrons amongst several choices. We'll continue to do that, except in cases where we have a follow-up topic that, that I specifically think needs to be connected to a recent one. But we'll be a lot more voting. So if you are a patron, uh, look out for that. And if you're not, well, that's one a little additional incentive to join. I want to make a plug, too. I'm going to try tomorrow to get out my one-minute reviews for all 10 of the Academy Award nominees. Oh, great. Yeah. Sean, yeah, check out Dancing Sean on YouTube for his one-minute movie reviews. Yeah, that's one those, word, Dancing Sean. Yeah, at Dancing Sean. Yeah, Dancing Sean, at Dancing Sean on Twitter and Dancing Sean for YouTube. One word, like Shea said. And yeah, well, he's, he's building up that collection of, of one-minute movie reviews and uh, yeah, getting more and more traction there, huh? And getting I, in there with the Oscars would be a great idea. I thought it was so funny, Sean, when you were, when you did Here Be Dragons, I know that nerd. And someone said, Sean, how is Sean the person who does one-minute movie reviews when he can wax poetic on <laughs> about so many different things? <laughs> it's a real challenge. Well, everybody, we'll see you next week for more Valar Re-Readus. <laughs>